Knockback is brought to you by thousands of supporters on Patreon at patreon.com slash Stand. If you want to show your support for Knockback, as well as CLS's PlayStation podcast, Sacred Symbols, the eclectic interview series, Fireside Chats, and the YouTube gaming series, SideQuest, please consider going to Patreon and pledging for a monthly amount that makes the most sense for you. Your Patreon support doesn't only ensure that CLS continues to produce the content you love, like Knockback, but you can get cool perks, too, depending on your level of support. You can get early access to each episode of Fireside Chats, Sacred Symbols, and Knockback totally ad-free. You can vote for show topics and provide feedback to be read on air. You can listen to exclusive podcasts only available to patrons, and much more. Your support is essential if Colin's Last Stand is to continue well into the future, so please consider showing some love. Again, that's patreon.com slash Stand. Thank you for your kindness, generosity, and support. Without you, CLS wouldn't exist. But enough of that. On to the show. Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to Colin's Last Stand Knockback. My name is Colin Moriarty. I'm joined, as always, by your favorite video clerk, Dagan Moriarty. Hi, guys. Oh, I should have said, I'm not even supposed to be here today. Yeah, very good. A little, little, mm. little, clerk's, uh, right. a little clerk's reference. Maybe I'll get Kevin, Kevin Smith on here. Still weird that I did a podcast with him one time in his so house. So cool, man. Very, very weird. I love that. It's a weird situation, too, that day because yeah. we drove, it that. was late 2014. Okay. We, had, we knew, the four of us knew we were going to quit ign ign obviously knew the audience didn't know this was in between christmas and new year's right before we launched and we went down there i remember that it was an incognito thing where we went down there to talk to him and we drove down and we were supposed to podcast with him at like i don't know noon or something at his house so he lives in like you know a nice part of la and he had some issue with his dog oh really where i think he has like a dachshund or something like that where his dog had to go to the vet so he's like you guys got to come back like tonight because I, I have to deal with this now oh wow and I remember being kind of mad where I'm like, I don't I like <laughs> I what the fuck are we supposed to do all day? You know, we were down there for meetings with YouTube gaming, too. So you had other stuff. to. Yeah. Do. But this was like the last thing. And I was like, I was kind of, you know, it's kind of like, who, who the fuck am I to be annoyed about Kevin Smith asking us to come back to his house, his house, <laughs> his home. <laughs> <laughs> and so then we did the show. And what I remember about it is that we he led us into his house. He led us in himself. I think his daughter might have been there or something like that. Okay. Walk up this like grand staircase and go to the left and he has like this big office with like a beautiful wood desk in it and stuff like that. And we had all this equipment because we are because Game of Greggy show is video and audio and, and we started setting up the cameras and stuff. He's like, I'm not doing a video. Oh. So we're like, okay. Like we were like, what like whatever you want to do is totally fine. So then we it was a really interesting experience and you know, I've never gone and listened to that show. And I wonder, oh, you never it, did? No, I've never listened to almost anything I've ever done. Oh, wow. You so, should listen to that. Yeah, so it, it's, it was a funny memory, but it was it was so surreal meeting him. And what I remember the most about it is that I brought weed with me. And I usually bring with me weed with me when we're driving somewhere. And not, of course, not flying. And obviously, Kevin Smith's a prolific smoker. And, and he had like a couple of like half-burned joints in an ashtray on okay. his table. And I was so intimidated by him that I, I was a, I didn't want to ask him if he wanted to smoke with me so I didn't ask him and it was like one of my regrets to uh, see if he wanted to smoke with me because obviously he's a big he pot. probably would have he now what happened what not to stay on this for too long sure. I know you don't want to but he, what was the he must have really saw your guys ascension or something like why he's king nerd like he's Kevin Smith why why how did he agree to do that I think a lot of it has to do with Greg I think that you know Greg was the yin to my yang and the fact that like he liked reaching out to big people, liked trying to get their attention and all that kind of stuff to help grow the brand. And I was totally the antithesis of that where I'm yeah. like, I want to just make the content. I don't really care about any of this shit. Right. And, you know, thankfully for him, we had someone to foil me being like the more introverted person. So he reached out to a shit ton of people and we would only get one in 20 people to respond to us. You know? Yeah, that's but cool, Kevin Smith though. was one of the people that it's pretty cool. responded to us. And I think that they might have met at like a Comic-Con 
panel for a Batman game or something uh, like that because Greg was doing all that kind of stuff. So okay. I think that's helped to get attention. But we we would for all the people that we had that were famous on the show, we didn't get you know many of the people that we wanted to get, which was you know obvious because we were really nothing. Yeah, the, the, my favorite the favorite person that Greg ever got for us was um, I don't know if you remember the sitcom Step by Step with Suzanne Somers and, and Patrick Duffy. Yeah, of course. I had a big crush as a kid on Allie, the the youngest. I remember her, the youngest daughter. And yeah, by the time the show moved to CBS in like ninety seven, ninety eight, along with Family Matters, we don't have to get into the whole TGIF history because I have a bizarre <laughs> amount of knowledge on that. But when they moved, they were all like you know in college or above. And what was interesting was that two of the sisters' names were Dana and Allie, which was our sisters' names, but. Um, That's right. Dana was like the middle sister and Allie. Or no, Dana was the oldest and Allie was the youngest. Okay. And then the middle one was uh, Karen. Wow. And I liked all three of them. I thought they were all hot. You know, like as a... I was in like eighth or ninth grade. Yeah, yeah. But I had a special love for Allie, who was kind of like a tom girl in the beginning, but then she kind of became like a hot girl at the end. Okay, okay. So it was like a joke amongst us that I had a crush on her when I was a kid. And then I I was late to a recording of the show once and I walk into the studio and she's just sitting there. (laughs) No one told you. No, no one told me that like she was going to be there. I'm like... It's an absolutely amazing situation. So, and then she did the show with yeah, you guys. Yeah, she did the show with us. So I thought that was pretty funny. That's super yeah. cool. I was a little intimidated. Uh, Dagan, CLS knockbacks all about retro and old things. I feel like I want to make the show more abstract than it is sometimes. You know, I have mission statements with my different shows that I keep internal. Usually, yeah. Fireside Chats, uh, the mission statement is eclectic. Keep it eclectic. So I'm trying to do that. Yeah. And Side Quest is keep it. You know, keep it analytical so for instance and keep it and i don't want to say positive because that's not true but keep it analytical keep it keep it constructive so for instance there was a topic that the crowd voted for me to do with side quest where i they wanted me to do the the best and worst games of the last you know the last decade or best game you know whatever it is and i was like i'm not doing the worst i'll just do the best right so that's kind of my mantra with that show and my mantra with this show is moving forward is to like i want it to be sometimes obscure and I want it to be a little looser and I don't want it necessarily to be about just IP or just property or just toys or just whatever. And so one of the weird ideas I had, there was two, there's two broad ideas in this wave of episodes that we're recording, Dagan. Okay. One of them that we're going to record after this, I don't know what order they're going to go into, is about the early internet and our experiences with the early internet, which yes. is going to be fucking hilarious. That's going to be a fun one. But the one we're going to do today is about the video store. This is a thing that if you are listening to the show and you are, I want to say if you are much younger than if you're in high school or younger listening to the show you it's it's there's a pretty good chance you were never even in a video store and or maybe just cursorily you had one in your neighborhood but like the streaming's been a thing for 10 years now it's not really longer than that so the video store is a good amorphous sort of topic that i wanted to do our memories of the video store what 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 it was like going into a video store and stuff like that i'm really excited very excited about this this is a great one great topic so before we get into it, I just want to remind you guys that we are supported on Patreon at patreon.com slash Collins Last Stand. If you like what we do here on Knockback or you like Fireside Chats or, and or you like SideQuest, please consider supporting CLS on Patreon. It really mean, does mean a great deal to us. It's it's by far the lion's share of the gross income of CLS and it allows us to do cool things, to pay ourselves and to travel and to you know to, to, to facilitate our recordings and whatnot. Plus you get perks, whether you support us at $1, $2, $5 a month, whatever you can, you get special things, including the possibility of getting every episode of Knockback and Fireside Chats a week early before anyone else. And you know, I'm, it's funny because I, I'm talking to an MCN, which is a multi-channel network right now that's run by a friend of mine. And, you know, knockback and fireside chats might be advertising, might be advertising in, in these shows in the future. I don't want it to be ever be crazy or whatever. But what I can tell you is that, you know, I had some conversations with the patrons, you know, in the last few months over at CLS. And, you know, no matter what happens on that front with the free feeds, the pre- Patreon feeds will never in a million years have any ads on them. And in fact, you'll notice that I don't even put the bumpers or the stingers on any of the, you know, I, I render everything twice to put on Patreon. So 
you know, that's awesome. that, so I, I anticipate that's going to be yet another perk over there in the future. Okay. Cool. You know, to keep things ad free because I'm not you know, necessarily a huge fan of ads, but you know, I want to grow the business and that's going to require that as well. So anyway, if you want to support us there on Patreon, you can, you don't have to, if you use the free feeds, which most of you do, that's totally great. I do ask that maybe if you like the show, you score us and rate us or whatever on iTunes, et cetera, wherever you listen, because that's very helpful to us as well. And I hope that if every one of you listens to these episodes, a lot of you listen to every episode. I hope I'm not getting too annoying with that. I listened to a lot of podcasts recently and I'm trying to like borrow ideas from them and they do, and they do similar shit like this. And a lot of people have been reaching out to me, Dave, saying like, you're not promotional enough. Yeah, have they? Yeah, have yeah, they said that? Like they're like, and I'm like so uncomfortable with it. So I'm just trying to be a yeah. little more. I'm trying to get a little more comfortable with it. You're doing a good job for a two-hour podcast or whatever these podcasts are running. Ninety seconds of me promoting it, I don't think it's a terrible thing. So I thank don't you. Think so. so thank you for your patience on that front, audience. Thank you so much for that. And you know, what? I realized in this wave that I, what I haven't done at all is promote us on social media, which I'm not going to do uh, at all this wave. I don't okay. think we really have to. They'll find us. Yeah, we're you know so popular us. now. And look at you. Uh, two, you have over 2,200 followers yeah, on Twitter. You, you, you guys, thank you so much for that. That's I can't even say. It's so humbling, and so, I get so bashful and embarrassed thinking about it. Th- so thank you for, thank you for embracing me on social media. You know, I was slow to I was slow to come around to social media. Instagram, a little earlier, but Twitter. Um, you guys make it so so pleasant over there, and I, you know, thanks again for that. You guys are the bestest. You are. You are the bestest. We appreciate you. And especially thank you to all to all of you out there that tweet at me, really terrible shit. Digging the video store, <laughs> the video store. I want to start this conversation. I think a great place to start this conversation before we get into that because I I did a lot of digging and in fact we when we do our independent research for this show we usually keep it to ourselves until we convene right. But there was one thing I found so egregious and so insane that we're going to get into about the video store. That yeah. we'll, we'll talk about it in a little while, but I actually sent you the article. Oh, it's great. You know, It's wonderful. It's so wonderful. But I wanted to talk a little bit about the video store just generally, and, and I wonder if any of these names resonate with you. Okay. There are six names, seven names really, that I think I have six, and I think some of these will resonate with you that I think about when I think of video stores. Okay. Showtime video. Yes. 112 video. Absolutely. People's video. This was a thing in Maine, so you probably okay. know that. Okay, that one I don't know. Try our video. Yes, of course. Blockbuster video and Hollywood video. Of course. So those are the video stores that were like kind of dominant in my life. Nice. Before, you know, Netflix. Very and nice. And what, how do you want to do this? Should we, should I talk a little bit about the, where the video stores come from before we talk about our memories of them? Or do you want to get right into the... Yeah, I mean, do you want to go back to, v, the you know, the the entrance of VCRs and all that kind yeah, of stuff yeah. and home movies? I mean... And the format war and stuff like that. Let's let me give me a couple minutes to kind of give a synopsis to everyone about what's Absolutely, going on. Absolutely, of course. So what people have to understand is, until the mid to late seventies, with the exception of television, like movies playing on television, once a movie was in the theater yeah. and it was gone, it was gone. That 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 was it, and that's a really hard thing to. I'm not saying like they burned every copy and never saw it again. What I'm saying is that like, if you missed. A New Hope or Empire Strikes Back in the theater in 1977 or 1980, you had no real chance. Maybe let's even go earlier. If you missed The Shining or you missed Rosemary's Baby or something like that, you, you were it was done. You would have to wait it. until someone showed it at some random theater or like that was it. Absolutely. And so the idea of recapturing your film memories or the ability to wait and watch a film in the comfort of your own home in the grand scheme of cinema, in the grand scheme of the history of moving pictures, going back to the late 1800s, is a somewhat still new phenomenon. And it really began in the 70s with 16mm and especially 8mm and what was called Super 8 films. 
And these were like real to real kind of films. And they were really relegated to the wealthy and the super wealthy. These were things that the machines weren't necessarily expensive, but acquiring a film could cost you hundreds or even thousands of dollars at this wow. time. You know, like a real film because of the licensing issues and all those kinds of things. And people typically use Super 8 and all those kinds of things actually for home movies, which are a little more affordable. Yeah. They needed a camera. But you could acquire like the real, you could acquire real films, you know? Absolutely. And it was very expensive. And so once it, so it, it drove people to the movie theater in, in greater numbers. And it was in like the seventies. It really, and so I have it here that it was in 1977. And there's actually, when you read about it, I don't know how much you read about it, Dagan, but there's, there's some, there's some argument on where the video store began and who had the first video store and all this kind of stuff. Okay. People often point to 1977. They point to this thing called Magnetic Video, which was this this publisher, this early publisher of videos, the first VHS or beta publisher. And Betamax is a format that we'll talk about in a minute. And they acquired 50 titles, the licenses for 50 titles from, from 20th Century Fox. And they opened what was called a club, a video club to kind of rent these things out and allow people to kind of borrow them at home. And some people point the video station in L.A. in 1978 as being the first kind of like you can rent, I guess, some Super 8 stuff, some Laserdisc stuff, some depending on the year, some beta or VHS stuff. Okay. And the rental fee was $10 and often, which was a lot of money back that, then. That really is. And you were not able to. And, and this was on through the 90s. You had to really join these things, these were things that you had to kind of be vetted because these were expensive films. Like if you walked out, for instance, in the early 80s with a laser disc and never returned with it, that's an investment that they can't recoup. Absolutely. Right? And so you'd have to be vetted. You'd have to put often put down. I mean, this is so foreign, right? Like you would often have to go in, not, not sometimes give a credit card, but more often give them like a hundred dollars. Wow. You know, and be like, you can hold this. And if I don't ever return with the movie, you just keep the money. Right, right, right. right. That was how things were kind of moving at that time. And in, so here's an interesting statistic. So there, there was so we, we talked about the reel to reel stuff. There's also Laserdisc, which is a thing that actually still existed until the early 2000s. This yeah. kind of high fidelity, kind of ridiculous. The, the discs are like half a pound. They're huge, and they're like records, size of records. Right, exactly. But there was this there was this format war at the time in, in the late 70s and early 80s between VHS, which was a JV, JVC product property and product. And Beta, Betamax, which was a Sony product. And Betamax was, they were both cassette tapes that looked very similar. Betamax was a little smaller. VHSs were a little fatter. And Betamaxes, by most accounts, were probably more high quality. But VHS was, or what we return, refer to as the video cassette, was the what, what won the format war as the 80s rolled on. And the reason for that was JVC was smart enough, unlike Sony, to license the, the technology to literally anyone that wanted it. So... Sony were the only people originally making Betamax machines, but everyone was making VHSs. And JVC couldn't give a flying fuck less because every box until the early 2000s that had a VHS logo on it, JVC was getting money for. So they made an enormous amount of money. Now, check out this stat. Okay. In 1980, there were 1.9 million VCRs in America. More than I thought. Okay. That is, that's a high number, yeah. In 1989, there were 64.5 million Wow. So we're talking about a 50-fold increase over a nine-year period wow. in, in VCRs. And it was in 1987 that the fears of the movie industry were not founded forever because that was the year that home revenue surpassed box office revenue and it never wow. went back. There you go. So what was originally happening here, and I don't mean to go on too deep of a diatribe about the history, but I just want to set the foundation for everybody, is there was a real fear and a real hesitance by the big movie studios to license any of their stuff when fox as i said earlier in 1978 licensed 50 movies to magnetic video the publisher that was a big risk because they they were pretty positive that if people start plugging these things in at home 
they're not going to go to the movie theater and see these things anymore. And so what did they do? They started, you know, and this was true through the 80s. Movies were 70 or $80 on VHS if you bought them new. They could be really And expensive. even more than that, $100 sometimes. Amazing. So that kind of sets the foundation for where I want to begin. Okay. And I think that's a good, a good place to start. Yeah, absolutely. When did we get a VCR in our house? Yeah, I was thinking about this. It could be anywhere between 1980 and 1982, I think. And I'm not 100% sure the year. And I actually, I actually talked to mom about it. We were trying this topic. I was excited about it a couple of nights ago on the phone, and we were trying to figure that out because I was really curious about it. I want to say that it was probably 1980. It was, it was probably 1981. I believe it was 1981 that we got our first VCR, and it was a top. I think it was a JVC, and I think it was, it was definitely, it was silver, and it was a top loader. I kind of remember this thing. It was the one where you pressed, pressed yep, down on it. Yep. Yeah. It didn't load into the side of the thing. It loaded on top with the hatch that popped up. And then you pushed it back down. Right, right. Yeah. And like a little clear window on the top of it. Yeah. Yeah. And we had it for quite some time. Yeah, that's why I think I remember it because that, that's three years before I was even born. But I think we probably had that through the through the 80s, that particular VCR. Yeah, I think we did. And how did that kind of open up your ability to enjoy things differently? Because what, what the interesting thing that I think is lost on a lot of people in the age of DVR and the age of digital entertainment and the ability to go on Netflix and just watch whatever you want, whatever order, whenever it's available. Yeah. It's hard, even for those of us that existed in the in the old world, as it were, nonetheless, the younger listeners that kind of, <laughs> that this is a little more foreign to, there was a television schedule, for instance, and when the show was off, it was gone. And apparently the, the until it went into syndication, maybe you never saw it again or whatever, especially if you're watching like soap operas or, you know, the news or whatever it is, like it's gone forever. Yeah. And part of the drive of getting VCRs originally into homes, at least the dueling effect of it was not only the ability for people to watch films, because originally people were like, well, if they want to watch films, they want to watch it in a higher resolution. They're going to want to watch it in a higher quality. They get laser discs. This is more for, you know, laser disc players were anywhere from like three to five hundred dollars in 1980 which is a lot of money. That is. Laser discs themselves were, were pretty expensive. And the the thought was that maybe VCRs and original you know, beta and then VCRs, maybe it was gonna allow people to record things off their television. That was the exciting thing. So there's it's important for people to understand that there was kind of dueling uses for the VCR. It was not only to watch home entertainment, but it was to record things to watch later. And we had a shit ton of tapes of things we recorded ourselves. Definitely. So how do you remember kind of using this thing? Was this thing like kind of a boutique-ish item that was kind of a hot ticket in the house? Was it something that just kind of sat there unused? No, it was definitely used. It, it changed everything because what happened, is it changes from our perspective as little kids. It changed the way we would be, you know, our entertainment. It skewed everything. We didn't have to leave. the. Ha it wasn't so much pressure now to leave the house and go to the movies. A lot of the funny thing is before this, a lot of the movies that we were seeing were through drive-in movies and not even in the theater. So that was kind of, you know, that was actually kind of interesting to me to reflect back on that. We, you know, a lot of the times we were doing drive drive-in theaters and all the movies are almost all the early movies I saw before the advent of getting our VCR. And as mom reminded me, we got one pretty early was seeing it through, through the drive-in movie theater. You're talking about E.T., Star Wars, all the early films that we saw. And having the VCR now had we could watch the we could watch the movies that we wanted to see at home. And the same for mom and dad. They could watch their adult movies. We could watch our kid movies. And I remember that 
really being a big shift because things sort of centered around things sort of centered around that, especially on the weekends and especially on in the summertime when there was we had all that free time. Now, you know, we could we could use the VCR. You know, and there, it was also another thing, big thing. Very, I'm very, very remin- uh, nostalgic about not only the video store, but we you were able to get videos free from the library, which I think was a by 1983. Certainly, that was already a thing. You would go to the library and get free videos, and that that was almost a part of our daily thing. You know, I, I remember especially that being a thing in the summertime. It was like go out, go shop. Mom had to go food shopping, then hit the video store. Back then, it was we, the, the first video store we frequented. Frequented was D and G Video in Medford, I think. And mom, I remember mom being very friendly with the people in there. And then also maybe hitting the library on the way back, and getting videos from there. So, and that you know that now we didn't have to tune in to whatever we were tuning into at night, the Muppet Show or whatever. We could watch the the video that we selected. You know, sometimes it was a live action thing, sometimes it was an animated thing, and. I remember it really taking front front and center. I remember it was really, really a big thing. It was definitely a. It's amazing that that thing lasted so long because it got almost daily use. Right, you know? right. And like you already, you know, you already alluded to the fact of recording things on television and being able to watch them again. I loved that, and I remember do, specifically doing that with the Robotech, trying to record them, and then as I remember buying blank blank VHS cassettes for recording was actually pretty pricey too. So we would oftentimes just tape over things. So I would get like three or four episodes onto a VHS and then I I would get tired of it and have to record the next one. So I would just tape over them. So I never had more than one, like one cassette, maybe two at a time of the Robotech series. But it was so, it's so neat to look back on that and see the commercials and everything. It's like such a time capsule. It's awesome. Also, I was going to say the font of the font of late 70s, early mid 80s, late 80s, early 90s commercials on YouTube all come from people's VHS recordings. So that they, that they made on VCRs. And what I always liked about, (laughs) about the, the analog days too. And we're talking about it with the commercials. We're talking about it with the kind of finding things to tape. It's the same thing with taping things with the cassette tape off of uh, the radio when you knew a song was coming up or anything like that. Absolutely. I mean, I was recording things off of VCRs and you know, off of VCR until the late nineties and even early, like maybe 2000, I would, I would stay up for 120 minutes, which was a MTV show on Sunday nights. I think like late at night, like 12 or one in the morning where they actually play like the videos you want to see. Yeah. Great show. And, uh, and even Headbangers Ball and stuff like that. And I would record all the music videos and I would record TRL after school, Total Request Live with Carson Daly because sometimes like there'd be like the offspring on there or Limp Biscuit or 311 or something like one of whatever I was listening to at the That's time. Awesome. So, so there's it's funny how this technology, unlike today, <laughs> has survived so long uh, or, or survived, I should say. It so did. Long. It really did. So talk to me a little bit about. Uh, but let's, let's now that we kind of have the, the the basis for like what the VCR is and all that kind of stuff. I really want to talk about the video store and the library is a great one too. I, that's a great point that we would Brookhaven Free Library, for instance, was a great resource for us to get a lot of different videos. And and I have weird memories of renting you know shit like Labyrinth there and this show. I used to like this Canadian show called Ramona. Nice. I used to rent there all the time, Very and nice. that's when I that, I used to rent Nosferatu, which is a f- horrifying movie. The original, yeah, Nosfer- really. And I like would I would, but I would always be too scared to watch it. What brought you to that? I was I loved Castlevania and I loved ah, vampires, and so I, yeah, and yeah, yeah, that, and, sure. And that was horrifying, like horrifying. Wow, just absolutely horrifying. Definitely some scary imagery in that. Silent, right? Yeah. So, talk to me a little bit about what like 
what was it? What was a what was a video store like? What are your memories of the of the video store? I feel like it's a really unique place. It's kind of hard to describe, but I want I'm curious if you can. Yeah, it's a, you know it's such a first of all it's so the the library we brought up the library and that's true, but the video store was really where you went for the selection, and there was really no the the library was a mere shadow of the video store. It really was all about the video store. And I have so many memories of the video store. And the funny thing is, and you talked about this a little bit in the opening, I have a video store. As I reflect upon this, I really realized I have a video store for every era of my life. There was always a video store that was the place where we frequented, that we got our movies and later games, of course. And so that's very interesting. That was always a major, there was always a different video store that was a form, the major component of our lives growing up all, all along the way. But the video store, the first thing I think of, Kyle, is I think the first, you know what, I, I, I have to go back and just nod briefly to the first person I think that we knew that had a VCR even before we did as a family was Ann Carl and Uncle Mike. They, had, they were early adopters of many technologies. They did, they were. And they, I think they were of that generation, born in the early 60s. You know, they were the first, they were the youngest adults that we knew and they were the most prone to get the latest hippest shit, right? So they were the ones that were really getting they were more in tune. Mom and dad were already a little bit they were really mom and dad were pretty young parents, but they were even and Carl and Uncle Mike were even younger and they were just more prone to get all the newest and latest stuff. So what was interesting about that is that my first video store experience was with them and I remember it very distinctly because it was during the very early era, way before you were born, where the VHS boxes were tremendous. They were huge. They were actually huge. And I remember going in there and seeing like the horror movie boxes with the imagery on the front. And you would flip it over and there'd be a synopsis of the movie with a couple of screen grabs from the film. And sometimes it was pretty visceral stuff for a little kid. You know, this could have been even as early as the late 70s for me. So I could have been six years old, seven years old. Certainly no older than eight. And I was looking at like the covers for, you know, you know, April Fool's Day and all these like horror movies, you know, all these horror movies, uh, Silent Night, Silent Night, Deadly Night. I remember it was one of the first ones I saw. It was like this Santa whatever image coming out of the chimney with the bloody hatchet. Like that was really, first of all, I was very, I, I was a very sensitive kid and these things had a really big impact on me. And I think I was also a very visual kid. So that was always the thing. Like it was always like a exciting, but also a little disturbing for me. But I was also the type that I would do it to myself. We talked about that in the, in the movies that we shouldn't have watched this kids episode. I couldn't, but help, resist but you know i had to look at these video cassettes and see what the images were and see what the images on the back were so that was my very first experience with that and then moving into our first video store that we frequented which was dng video going with mom all the time you know dad worked a lot so you know as mom reminded me on the phone it was me that was always at the video store with you guys and i remember mom some of my earliest memories was mom having a very good rapport with the girls that worked there like they were very friendly like friends with each other i think cuz mom was in there so much because i think if you look at it from a young parent's perspective 
that was probably a pretty awesome thing because you could actually sit your kids down and they're not flipping through the channels or trying to find something they like or maybe they have a half hour, 22 minute cartoon show and then who knew they were going to go wander off. You could sit them in front of the TV for two hours and know they were going to be there for whatever it is, you know, 89 minutes or whatever and they were going to watch the movie. So that was a probably a pretty cool thing for parents and a new thing. So, so the video store... That the very first thing I think of besides the women that worked there that were so friendly and had a familiarity with mom was the, all the video covers. It was just an array, a, a rainbow of images, you know, and the different sections. So you had the comedy section, you had the horror section, you had the drama section, and we'll get to some of the other sections, <laughs> you know, the kids section, we'll get to some of the other sections, but I remember especially being very drawn to the horror section because I didn't want to watch any of these movies, but I wanted to see all the titles and again, being very drawn in and finding it very magnetic, but at the same time being repelled by it as well. But I, it was very, very visceral thing for me to walk in the video store and look at the video covers and want to see all the images and sort of immerse myself in these things that I knew I shouldn't have been seeing. And mom didn't stop me. It was like she might be having talking to the girls up front and I was walking around the different sections. I could have walked right to the adult section, you know? Right, right. So, so that was always a, a big thing for me was the images on the front of the boxes because that's how they advertise them. So if you could picture it, I'm not being specific enough. So they had, you walked into these video stores and they had shelves along the walls and then shelves sort of think of like a library, but the shelves were very thin and they just held each VHS box, original VHS box with the illustrations and the photos and the synopsis and the title and everything. And there were just lines of those and that's what you could see was available. And they were facing outward. And they were facing outward so you could see. And as I remember, most of them had like a little Velcro tab under the video with like a little circle, almost picture like a beach tag or a bottle cap that size and you would take the little velcro tab off if it you know if the video is out the tab would be missing and then you would take the little you selected a movie you took the little velcro tab off you took it up to them and then they gave you the video you didn't take the box that was there just to look at right and that was my very earliest it always smelled like popcorn in that specific video store because i think they had like one of those old-timey popcorn machines there that's kind of cool right it was that era where it's like the sights and the sounds and the experience of it you know there's something to be said for that you know we're so this is such a this is such a show about nostalgia and everything but there's so there's something so much more substantive to that than just selecting a movie on demand and putting it on for the kids right right you know it was like a it was like a whole thing it was like a whole process that you had to go through which was, you know, it makes me smile thinking back on it. It was so neat, you know. It was awesome. And and uh, Jeremy Cochran wrote into us with this with this comment. And by the way, if you want to comment, send in your thoughts, comments, questions, concerns, whatever, memories. <laughs> if you have concerns about Some people have concerns. Some people have concerns. <laughs> and some of these. Then you can support us on Patreon at the $2 level or higher. I let you guys know about a couple weeks before we record the next wave. I tell you what the topics are and you guys submit questions, comments, and concerns, thoughts, <laughs> memories, whatever. <laughs> And uh, we had about 75 entries for this particular wave. That's so we appreciate amazing. That, which is awesome. Jeremy Cochran wrote in and said, do you miss it all not knowing every detail about a game like today and basing rentals or purchases off of the box art, word of mouth, and the description on the back of the box? Games seemed more magical in those times. And I think what he, you know, because renting games was a big part of it too, and we'll get into that. But he's talking a little bit here, Dagan. Jeremy's talking a little bit about what you're saying, which is yeah. 
the leap of faith. And this is this is a thing that was so common back then because and the leap of faith is not common at all anymore. The leap of faith is actually if you're taking leaps of faith still on things you're buying, you're not doing due diligence. And that's up to you to do it, but if you if you're stuck with a truly bad game or a truly bad movie, you didn't you didn't go online and look at the Rotten Tomatoes and the Metacritic score or look at Absolutely. YouTube videos and stuff like that. There were no options like that. If you Nothing. were lucky, you might be able to watch Cisco and Ebert, but those were new releases. So then you would have to like cinematic releases. So then you'd have to kind of remember like, what did Cisco and Ebert say? Often the, the most common thing that you would see on a, vid- a video box in the 80s and 90s that would sell it was two thumbs up because that go. would that would tell you that you might not remember or might not have seen it. But Cisco and Ebert and later Ebert and Roper really liked this movie and that yeah. was like a big way to sell it. That's a great that's a great pull. Siskel and Ebert. Did they did they eventually in the show incorporate a segment talking about home what was released on home video? I assume they probably did, but they I don't must know, I remember. Have, right? I used to watch it sometimes. It was called what was it called? Afternoon at the movies or something like that or something like that. Afternoon at the movies or evening at the movies or something like that. I think that's what it was something called. Something like that. Something like that. Yeah. And I I've watched some really awkward exchanges with them. Like there's some funny videos on there of like their more awkward awkward shit. Like they didn't really I don't care for each other that much. No, I don't think they got along that great. They worked at like rival newspapers, I think, too. In Chicago, like, right? Yeah. Like the Chicago Sun-Times and the Chicago Tribune. Tribune, like right. So, you know, to, to Jeremy's point, it, it was a different time. We've, we've talked about that, I think, I don't want to say ad nauseum, but many times on the show already in terms of games because of how, of all the shit we got stuck with with games. And then when we did the Mega Man episode yesterday, actually, we recorded it. I don't know when you guys heard it, if you heard it. But we talked about how it, it went the other way where bad box art betrayed a good product. And it was the same thing with, with movies. And it was it was often like... What I remember about the 80s specifically, Dagan, was, and films from that era, I think about Labyrinth's box art and sim- and certain box art where it was Uncanny Valley type realistic drawings that weren't quite right of the cast and like the the, the mysticism in the movie or whatever. The, yeah. The, the environments. Absolutely. Trying to stack as much shit as possible into, onto the box often, not, some, not, not always, but often trying to just give you as much eye candy as possible to kind of get you to pick the box up off the, uh, up the shelf. I love that. I love the, I love that you called it a leap of faith too. That's the perfect term I was looking for, especially referring to NES games. And you know what? Especially the NES era for games. But you know what I love about this too, Kyle? And what Jeremy's speaking to Jeremy's point. I think it was even worse with the leap of faith was even bigger with movies. Cause like you're saying, you got maybe the night at the movies, the Siskel and Ebert reviews, maybe you got a write up in the newspaper, right? Or maybe you heard word of mouth from a neighbor or something. But there was no at least we had Nintendo power. There was no I mean, there there were there's cine, cinephile and movie magazines, but they weren't common things for regular people. There was really no way to find out about movies, to even less degree the lesser degree than games. Right, right. So movies were a particular like leap of faith, especially in those early VHS days. Yeah, you're right. And and what's funny about that too, Dagan, is and w- w- one of my memories of this, and you could still see it when I look at you know sometimes I go like scour on IMDb like old movie posters and shit. Or Rotten Tomatoes, and I look at old reviews, and and you see like it's like four stars. The you know the Santa Fe free newspaper or something like that. Like they would grab any score that they could possibly get from any hoedunk fucking you know publication in order to like sell their product it's because amazing. they you know because Cisco and Ebert probably gave them two thumbs down or the New York Times hated their shit and they, but they would like go so you would I remember I, I it's a funny and random thing but I often remember being like where what is this the St. Pete the St. Pete Times <laughs> you know which is the Tampa Bay's newspaper but the the, the like what I don't know. I just remember reading those things and being like, "What? Where are all these obscure publications right. reviewing these movies?" And they like, even as a young person, even as a really young kid, responding to that, right? Like, what is what is this? Right. You know? 
you know, my memory of, of, you know, I'm going to, I'll use Showtime video, which I mentioned earlier as kind of the, uh, of the starting off point about like my memories of, of being in the video store, because the, everyone knows what it's like to be in a blockbuster. Everyone knows what it's like to be in a Hollywood video, but, and people's video, I'll tell a story about that. I already told, but I'll, I'll, I'll reiterate it here, but Showtime video and 112 video and try are the three videos stores on Long Island that we went to. And they all had a little something different. It was right next to Showtime Video, or right next to Ragtime Showtime Video was. And it was this small, close to our house in Brookhaven Hamlets. This small, small selection, small building, a small store. And I remember it being kind of dark, a little bit, a little bit dimly lit, not super dimly lit, kind of like a bluish hue to it. I don't, I don't know if I'm remembering that right. That could be right. And like you walk in to the back right was like the counter. They had like a back room that they were like kept all the videos in. You would. In in Showtime, what would happen was you'd they had these laminated tabs that were you know because Dave was talking about the Velcro and there was like all these weird things that you can do. Sometimes I remember people's video in Maine that I used to go to. You would, the videos would be behind the box, so like if there was a video behind the box, you just take the video. Just up grab and, the video, yeah, right? Exactly. That seems like a good system. And in <laughs> yeah, because they didn't have right? to store them or whatever. But in right. Showtime, what would it be was there, there would be like these these plastic things on the front that you would put a tab in, and then if the tab was in the box, then you, then it was there, and you take the tab out. Bring it up, and they would give, and they give you the video. And this was for games too. And I, I can't really describe it, but I remember the way that the video store smelled. It wasn't like you were saying popcorn for the for the video store you were referring to in Medford. I don't remember. It wasn't a bad smell. I don't remember quite what it was, but I know it. If you I know, smell, yes, you know? I know the smell you're talking yeah. about because other video stores smelled like that. And it was it was kind of a magical thing because it was it, we lived in a small smaller town. A lot of people weren't populating Showtime Video. Eventually, Blockbuster put Showtime Video out of business, but. It was like kind of a special thing that you like you were saying you did it on a Friday night, a Saturday night. Maybe it was a treat if you did it during the week. And again, you just took that leap of faith and you just saw things, you know, what I always think about is like all the movies that I made dad and mom watch, like all the shit that I made them watch, you know, like <laughs> the late 80s, early 90s, like kind of kid centric movies, whether it was I, I think Home Alone's a good movie, but, you know, whether it was Home Alone or the Little Giants or whatever, whatever sport, yeah. Mighty Ducks and so the other thing I remember, Dagan, is that there was a constant, I don't know if you remember this, but there was a constant churn at these smaller mom and pop video stores of posters. Yes. They would get, so they would buy these movies. And I was reading about this, by the way, and I think I wrote it down. I didn't know, I didn't kind of know the semantics of it. There were two ways that video stores bought movies at the time. And this was a big balancing act that they had to do. Movies, like I said, were 60, 70, 80, 90, $100, depending on the era, depending on the, the type of movie. And they were talking specifically about some like when the move to a hundred dollar movies happened, like a hundred dollar VHS has happened, like when the uh, special edition of like Apocalypse Now came out and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And movie, you know, so video stores had to put down cheddar to like ahead of time to get you know to try to get an appropriate amount of copies, knowing that they're going to make little rips off of every one of these movies, and then hopefully in a couple months they make a profit. Right. Or they could. There was there were systems later on where basically for a much cheaper fee, like ten dollars a movie. You would get the movies, and you would split like half and half with the publisher, the the funds, which kept a lot of these video stores open. So there were two different ways to acquire the movies, and they would get like a thirty or thirty five percent discount off the sticker price if they bought like you know in bulk. So you would often see movie, you know, video stores if the new movie, the new hot movie was a horror movie or whatever, you know, Friday the Thirteenth Three or something, they would buy you know twenty five copies of it. You'd hope against hope that they had one, and that was that's kind of the funny thing about it too is that when you go on when a movie new movie pops on Netflix or you go to the cinema even then and now obviously or whatever, there's no way that they're going to be out. Of movies, right? Like, there's no way you're going to go on Amazon Prime and they're just not going to have the not newest episode it. of whatever you're looking for, whatever. Like, you maybe you'll buy it, maybe you won't, but it's there. And this was the other game was like, is it going to be there? What's your backup plan? What's your tertiary plan? Like, sure. It was it was a whole thing. 
about it. And I have a lot of fond memories in the Showtime video, and I have a lot of fond memories, like I was saying, of the posters and stuff. I had an awesome Mighty Ducks poster that I got from there and and other stuff. And so th- there's this whole ecosystem that's just dead to the world now that existed for a very short time. And what I was reading about, you know, was that it was really only a 25-year period that video stores were a thing, like a real thing. Makes sense. Here's an interesting. Here's some interesting stats for you. Okay. You know, I found a really awesome New York Times article from 1988 that I suggest people. I should have wrote down the the name of it, but um, you probably find it. Just look for you know video stores 1988 New York Times. You'll probably find it. And it showed that the the industry was always in flux. And we often talk about how Netflix killed Blockbuster and Hollywood Video, right? But we often forget that yeah. Blockbuster killed the mom and pop shop. But what we often don't talk about at all is that the mom and pop shops all cannibalize each other. And this interesting New York Times article is talking about in 1987, 5,000 video stores closed in the United States wow. and 5,000 opened oh, in wow. the United States. And the churn was crazy because in 1987, the prices went up from for, to about $90 or $100 and, uh, per tape. So there was this problem. At, at the same time, the prices were falling because you'll remember in the late 70s, early 80s, I was telling you that these video clubs, these so-called video clubs were charging maybe $10 for a 24-hour rental. And, wow, really? But get this price, right? 1985, these guys were killing each other. In 1985, $2.38 to rent a movie. Okay. In 1987, $2.02 on average to rent a movie. So the prices are like, so these guys were killing each other. And the other big problem, of course, was Blockbuster. Blockbuster is founded in 1985, one store, right? Four in 1987. Where did it start? It started in Dallas. Okay. Oh, interesting. So one store in 1985, four in 1987, 400 in 1988. 1,000 by 1990, 1,600 by 1991, 2008, 8,000. 2008? Yeah. So like right during the recession and like at the brink of, that was like right when digital streaming was becoming a thing. So video yeah. stores were still very much alive at this point. Sure. It was just that Netflix was killing them by the disc, by, by, ma- by mail. That's amazing. They weren't killing them by streaming yet. Okay. And you'll remember also that Blockbuster was in that game. And by the way, in case you're curious, Blockbuster could have purchased Netflix in 19, in 2000 for $50 million. Netflix, Is that amazing? Netflix trades, by the way, today on the stock market for $350 a share and has a market cap of $150 billion. And they have 150 million paying subscribers that pay at least $6 a month. That's amazing. So Blockbuster uh, yeah, made a huge mistake there. But here's the interesting stat. So 1989 in the United States, 30,000 video stores. 2004, 6,000. Interesting, right? That is. And by the way, the 8,000 stores globally for Blockbuster, in case people are confused, those numbers don't add up. That's global. That's not the United States. That's global. Okay. Right. So just give me a little taste about how there was a constant uncertainty. This this was a this was an industry. If you read that 1988 New York Times article, you're talking to guys, you know, they're interviewing guys that own 10 or 12 of these stores that are gone. Like Blockbuster was even coming in. There was a guy named H. Wayne, who's I think his last name is spelled Huzang or pronounced Huzanga. He was uh, the CEO of Waste Management Inc. and became the CEO of Blockbuster. And is the guy that, that that's and, interesting. Yeah, that ended up selling Blockbuster to Viacom in the mid 90s. But it's just it was an, always a volatile and uncertain business from the very beginning, and we, and again we often talk about how streaming, how Netflix and Amazon Prime and Hulu, whatever, HBO Go, all these things killed the video store, but really the video stores were killing each other for a long time too. Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. I think I think a lot of things led to the death of the video store. Well, several factors I should say, but we'll get to that later. But what do you wanna what do you wanna discuss specifically right now, Kyle? What what era and what and what thing? 
I'm curious, like, what the different video, like, what your evolution was with the different video stores that I might have mentioned. Because I think we have to get kind of specific in order to get the memories out, right? Sure. And I'll start, I'll throw out one to you, 112 video. Okay. This was this was a video store on Long Island in Patchogue, I want to say. Medford. Medford. 112 is a is a pretty popular road. It's Route 112, I think. And we call it 112. It's just known in the vernacular on Long Island as 112. It's this very populated and very crowded road full of strip malls and stores or whatever. And there was this video store called 112 Video that we used to go to. And 112 Video, unlike show, 112 Video was an independent video store. I don't know if it's still there, but it was there very recently. I think it's still there. And so it's like one of those rare boutique video stores, but it was huge. And in even in the DVD era, when I was in high school and like late in high school and into college and stuff, they were famous even like coastally because they had this insane VHS collection of like really obscure shit. And so people would come from like all over to go to 112 Video yeah. to, to scour the shelves for all this obscure stuff. But they were the antithesis of the mom and pop Showtime kind of smaller boutique-ish feel. 112 was like this kind of huge lots of money spent on lots of inventory kind of video store and it showed the kind of contrast between the two and it always felt like a special kind of thing to go to 112 because you just had a a greater variety of things. oh my god that's so much what stuff. are your memories of that of that video store that was the first video not the last but the first video store that was like my experience with a cine a true cinephile video store this was like a a, a movie a, a video store for movie people because they literally had everything I'll give you some frame of reference. In 1992, maybe even 1991 when I was a junior, but 1992 when I was a senior in high school, as we talked about in past episodes, I was a big anime guy already. Their anime section in 1992 was as big as most mom and pop video stores. That's how big this place was. That's how much stuff they had. And that was the that was what sold that place to me because they had a huge selection of anime where a mom and pop video store might have one or two odd things on the shelf that they got in. Maybe, you know, they had a full selection of anime, everything from episodic TV series to direct to video OAV animation stuff, dubbed, subtitled, stuff I've heard of, stuff I never heard of, stuff I saw that only on video game boxes, you know, that here was the anime property that the video game was based on. So that was my first foray into that. I, that was a legit place for anime when anime wasn't even a thing yet. If And that tells you, that's really indicative of what this place was like and how cutting edge they were as far as movies and how seriously they took it. Not only that, but their animation section, they had foreign animated films. They had Watership Down and Plague Dogs and... All the rock, rock and roll, rock and rule rather, and the heavy metal films, all the anime, you know, I was a really big animation fan, obviously, and I, they had all, even the rarest, you know, Fire and Ice, all the Ralph Bakshi films, the Rankin and Bass, Lord of the Rings stuff, the Ra- Rankin and Bass Hobbit, thing, you know, movie rather, they had all the animated films that was just like, it was mind blowing to me. And I was very, very animation specific then. Later on in college, and I'll talk about another video store in Philly, but later on in college, my mind opened up more to film in general. But for 112 Video was my spot to get an, to rent animation. And it was great for me because if you guys listened to the app before when, when Anime was Underground episode, you know how expensive it was to buy the stuff, even dubbed, VHS dubbed from 
hopefully from Laserdisc, that was $30 a pop for a 20-minute episode sometimes. So In the late 80s. In the late 80s, early 90s. So going to 112 Video and be able to rent a anime video for the weekend for five bucks was saying that was a that was a big deal you know i could get two things for ten dollars and keep them for the whole weekend and enjoy them and dub them vcr to vcr you did that yeah you yeah. did that in Brooklyn later um, or in philly by no by 90 by 90 maybe we had the two vcr set up by 90 or 91 maybe we had a VCR downstairs and I had my own VCR that I bought and maybe the old VCR, you know, so I might've bought a VCR for a couple hundred dollars, had the old top loader and dad heard to replace the VCR downstairs. So I, cause we used it. I used it to dub, to rent videos and from one twelve, especially from one twelve, and dub them. And also when we were d- doing our skate video stuff. That's you how know. you edited? Yeah. We edited VCR to VCR. That was the primitive thing. And sometimes we could, you could edit, camera to vcr you could use the camera like the vcr one of the vcrs so you could do it that way what was the tape quality like what was the quality like when you tried to when you recorded the dubs oh like it, was, the it would degrade really terribly because you're already on vhs right and even a legit vhs and the dubbing it yeah it would, it would get bad the sound quality would degrade the color would degrade it would get grainy you know i think it was less noticeable then because our perspective was different we didn't have you know hd and all you know all this crazy stuff for you know 4k and all this stuff so our, our our vantage point our perspective was a little different but it's still thinking back it was pretty dicey right right you know were there any anti-piracy measures that these tapes had or that you had a circumvent or was it just as easy they as never had anything i mean they had warnings Did they had do it right w- warnings. the fbi would come get you yeah the, F- the fbi warning that was actually on the you know you know as part of the film before the film and then they had the stickers on the actual physical tapes as well like little foil, but they weren't anything that you couldn't do it. Right, right, right. Not, not from my experience. Right. Yeah, I, didn't, I don't know how they would even do that in a, in a more analog kind of situation. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's. That, it's funny, man, because it was. It was this, the selection was everything. That's the other thing is that it's just you had what they gave you. You know, between Netflix, Amazon, Hulu, and YouTube, you can pretty much find almost and iTunes if you really needed to use it or whatever. You could find almost anything you want. Like literally, sometimes I'm shocked. Like when we go deep into something and I'm like, like Ramon and I, he comes over the last two times he came over, we get stoned order ramen and, and watch supermarket sweep because for some reason, for some reason on Amazon prime, they have shit ton of episodes of supermarket. Really? Yeah. They have, I don't understand what's going on where like some of these, like, like it's, it's so funny, especially with the search, the the function, the search functions on PlayStation and other kind of medium where you can search multiple venues at once to see like, it like just search for anything and you'll find it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really unbelievable. But back then you really were at the, at the, at the kind of the mercy of their selection of this limited selection and, and that leap of faith that you were saying, but a place like 112 had such a greater selection than Showtime and that was the first cannibalization you saw in the video in the video store era and then obviously Blockbuster comes in later and, and we had a Blockbuster you know in the next town over that kind of killed a lot of the video stores what are your memories of your Philadelphia video store that, or, or or video stores that you remember so there was a video store well I have a couple of different memories of video stores in Philly but the there was a really big cinephile I started college in 94 in Philly downtown and there was a Video store, I don't know if it's still there. I should have looked into it. It was there for a really long time on Locust Street in Center City called TLA Video. And that was like a hardcore cinephile 
video store where everybody that worked there was like a really like an encycl had an encyclopedic knowledge of film and they were super huge movie buffs with a huge film expertise and they had again everything that you could hope for and my barometer again was oftentimes animation and what they had in that regard and you know they had like all the mike and uh, the spike and mike twisted animation festivals all the vhs copies of mtv liquid television all the all the episodes of Ren and Stimpy, all the a lot of an, a lot of anime stuff, a lot of cinematic anime stuff and directed TV stuff, o, OAV, a lot of the Ralph Bakshi stuff, a lot of the stuff from the seventies, you know, a lot of those type of thing, the early Nirvana stuff like Rock and Rule and those those really odd animated features that didn't do very well or stayed in the theater for maybe a week or two in the seventies and eighties, the Watership Downs, and then when I started to get into more into film. They had, you know, Martin Scorsese's whole catalog dating back to like the things that were hard to get back then, like Mean Streets or Italian American, like even his most obscure early student film NYU stuff like they had everything. And it was so dazzling. All the Ralph Bakshi films like Fritz from Fritz the Cat, like a lot of you couldn't get a lot of this stuff. A lot of this stuff was at long out of print, but they had it. They always had it. And again, my context with them was pre-DVD era. This was still the, very much the VHS era in 94, 95, 96. And then we had a Hollywood. We didn't get really too into it, any of the other chains. But, and I want to talk more about Blockbuster specifically. But Hollywood Video was also had a location downtown, I think, on Walnut Street at that time. And I think in 94, they were going out of business. And they had all like, I remember we had heard about it in animation class. We were in a character design class or a background design class or something. And our instructor was like, Hollywood video is closing down. Like they're liquidating all their stock. Like everything's like a couple of bucks. So we went down and we got like, you know, original, you know, dubbed copy of Akira. They had all the Mighty Orbots episodes on VHS, which I still have in the original plastic clamshell cases. These things are worth a lot of money. Because some of them only had like one printing, you know, some of them were only printed off once. And, you know, so I think I got the Rankin and Bass Hobbit film, the original copy of that. And we could talk more about video stores closing and liquidating their stock. And it was kind of sad. But Hollywood Video, I remember, was the first one because there was one out here, too, in Bucks County in one of the towns. And I remember that closing down. So those are my two Philly centric video store experiences. You know, it's so it's so interesting to learn you know, how it changed and how it kind of evolved to DVD. And I wonder how much DVD also, just the, the cheaper cost of DVD affected the video store as well. You know, that it was becoming more affordable to own movies. That's exactly right. I, that's what I was reading when I was doing, you know, as, out of all the topics that I researched for this this wave of episodes, this was the one that I got deepest into, like late at night in San Francisco, or San Francisco in Santa Monica, sitting at my desk, for hours like reading about this stuff and like scouring even finding myself you know on like and google news and or what do they call it? google scholar and jstor and stuff like reading all of these old things and that's um, awesome dude you know it's 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 funny because it's like you said use the use the good word it's sad right it's sad to watch these things kind of come and go and absolutely but we're all kind of responsible for its demise by following the market trends, right? It's it's a similar thing about when people, you know, I, I'd often talk about the, 
the the contradiction in seeing these old older documentaries about Walmart, for instance. So there, I remember seeing this specifically when I was in high school. There was this PBS documentary about Walmart coming into a small town and how the small town like didn't didn't want them, right? Right. And they were putting all these companies out of business and stuff. But all it takes for Walmart not to thrive in your community is just just not go there. And and the fact of the matter is, you all went to Walmart and you all killed the mom and pop stores anyway. And it's a similar situation with the video store where we we were sad to see our friends, like you were talking about mom's friends, maybe in that early 80s video store in Medford. You know, they were, but we, we put them out of business. And that's just that's just the way the market works. So I try to be a little more dispassionate about it, as sad as that is, because it's the same thing that will happen to taxis. Yeah. It's the same thing that Netflix did, the Blockbuster. They got their comeuppance. That's kind of the funniest part is Blockbuster was shameless. Like they were building in the late 80s, they were building a block. A Blockbuster was opening every day. That's amazing. You know? Sometimes multiple blockbusters opening every day. Like they were just, they were going around. And if you read that New York Times article, you read other stuff. They were going around just offering money to people just to get the fuck out, out, out. They would buy stores and just close them. They weren't, they weren't even trying to like take them over. They would just get out, get out, get out. Yeah, yeah. And, and it, it that's the way it happened. Really and, aggressive. And, and, and very aggressive and overly aggressive. It's funny reading about them because we look at Blockbuster as being a vibrant and viable company in hindsight from the mid 80s through like the mid to late 2000s, like mid aughts. To late aughts when Netflix, you know, they were too late to mail, you know, to DVD by mail and stuff like that. They just couldn't compete. And but the reality is, is that Netflix was in trouble or Blockbuster was in trouble rather as soon as the mid 90s. Like they were in trouble. And it's fascinating to read about Blockbuster specifically. And I, I know you want to talk about Blockbuster. So let's talk about them next. What I didn't realize, Dagan, and I don't know if you remember this, is that Blockbuster got super aggressive. And when you re- when you read and research about the things that they were trying to do. And especially in the mid to late '90s, yeah, some revolutionary shit that they were trying to do that that's way ahead of its time. That that is unbelievable. They were trying to do a thing specifically called blockbuster music, and I don't know if you remember any of this. No, but the idea was it was a proto iTunes, where the idea was that they wanted to create stores where you would go in. You know, it would be maybe attached to the blockbuster, maybe like a kind of a kind of a an organ of it. And you would go in and you would be able to select CDs and take the tracks you wanted off the CDs and burn your own CDs. This was something that they like were thinking about and trying and piloting in like the, in the mid 90s, like even before even the most expensive CDRs were available. And, okay. and people might remember 98, 99 when CDR technology became really accessible. They were still super expensive. It became comical how cheap they were it became. pricey. Like the, DB, the, the rewritable discs were like super expensive and the, and the players and I talked about it on the PlayStation episode about how I used to just shamelessly pirate PS1 games from 112 Video. Talk to me a little bit about Blockbuster. This is kind of looked at as the big behemoth. Yeah. And it's it's it reminds me a lot of Walmart, like I said, in the sense that we 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 all it, it, there's much there's much div- divisiveness about it. There's much disrespect around a Blockbuster. Yeah, we all went there. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what was interesting about Blockbuster, one thing we didn't mention is is late fees. Yeah. Which is so foreign, right? The fact that like you had to have this chronology in your mind or written down in your fridge or something about like we have to bring this movie back tomorrow. We have to bring this movie back in five days. And originally with video stores, it was often a twenty-four hour turnaround, especially with new releases. If you were if you were getting something older, maybe you can keep it for forty-eight or seventy-two hours. Yeah. But if you were renting something new that was hot and you finally got your hands on it that Friday it came out or whatever, you had to bring it back the next day. You had twenty-four hours. And and is that Netflix? You know, Reed Hastings actually founded Netflix because. Because he was infuriated over a forty dollar late fee he accrued on Apollo thirteen at Blockbuster. No, that's way. that's that's. It was like he like hated Blockbuster. Yeah, oh, I can understand that. And he owed like forty dollars in late fees on Apollo thirteen, which he could have just bought <laughs> right. for that much money at and, that point. At that point in the nineties, 
and it became this this uh, the the situation where he was like, we have to do away with with late fees. But to your point earlier, Dagan, about did DVDs become a, a problem? It was because DVDs were so cheap to print and so cheap to buy. New DVDs were fifteen or twenty dollars. Exactly. And so it became it, it it tightened this this situation where people were, were looking at VHSs in nineteen eighty eight and they were eighty dollars and they're like, well, I'll just rent it for two dollars and fifty cents. But now they were looking at it being like, you know, with inflation and everything even taken into account, these movies were still significantly cheaper. And you could either rent it for $5 at that time or you could just buy it for 20 And so that became a problem, too. Absolutely. Well, well said. Well said. But talk to me a little bit about Blockbuster. So Blockbuster, I know we all want to paint the evil, toxic, poisonous corporate giant. But it's true. When I think about when I think back about Blockbuster and reflect about my experiences there, they're not. They they do feel pretty negative. I remember it. I remember frequenting frequenting a, a few blockbuster stores, but there was one on Long Island. There was two on Long Island. There was one near where I used to live in Nassau County when I worked in New York and needed to be closer to the city, and then one near Dad's in East Patchogue, near Swan Cleaners and all that kind of. You know the one I'm talking about. Yeah, and Swan Deli, which Swan I worked Deli at for two years. It's still there. Still still there, right? Yeah. Um. So that blockbuster. I remember specifically remember both places. The parking lot was always really crowded on Friday and Saturday night. You might not get a parking spot right away. It was crowded inside. You guys will remember, a lot of people will remember the new release section. They might have 40 copies of a movie. They were all out. Didn't matter how many copies. You couldn't get one. You know, it was very sterile. I remember just being the environment inside was very sterile. It wasn't colorful. White shelves, I think. Blue White carpets, shelves, very like lean, that. right? It wasn't particularly friendly. You know, very spare. I just, I just remember it not being a very fun experience. It wasn't. It didn't have that same resonance as like the early video stores. It was, it was much more warm. There was more warmth. You know, they didn't have. I don't remember now. Yeah, I guess I, I'm just seeing like I'm just seeing like okay, Braveheart just came out. There's like a, an entire wall, twenty foot long wall of just copies of Braveheart. You know, it just felt weird. You know, and it, I I think Blockbuster was also a little. I think it was pricey as well. Yeah, I think it was a little more expensive, and I think that the reason that they charged they got away with charging more, as far as I understand, is because you it, there was a more of a likelihood because what you're talking about is volume. There was more yeah. of a likelihood that in 1995 you went in to get the double cassette of Braveheart because it was so fucking long you had to get oh, two that's tapes. Right. That you, there would be a more likelihood that you would get it, and if you didn't, they had this massive selection of old movies. Right. You know, and unlike the you know to describe it a little more to a little more in depth, what you might remember Dagan is that it was an alphabetical order. The new releases were along the outside of the of the wall. Like, yes, right? that's right. So Blockbuster was like this often this deep store in terms of space. Yeah, and there were shelves in the middle that were populated with like older films, older and, they, films. And, and they and they organized them often by genre. And there were usually so many of them that unlike the front facing videos of the new releases, they were actually stacked like spine out. Yeah. So you so they and they had like all that kind of stuff there. Absolutely. Yep. And with. The movies were in alphabetical order on the outside, the new releases. And the new releases could have been like movies that were released in the last six months. And it would start with A on the left and work, right. work around work away in a clockwork, clock, you know, like an upside down U to the other side where the Zs were. And it would often be people would often, and I remember this kind of stuff like where you would, you would kind of identify like I wanted to rent this, so I would, I'd make a beeline to that. Or you would divide and conquer or sometimes go against the stream right because naturally Z. people used to start at the a's and yeah. work their way around but sometimes you'd conflict and go start in the Z other direction exactly way. yeah yeah 
And that's right. It was around the perimeter of the store, right? So in a way, it's kind of sad that people, you know, younger generation will never really experience this. But in, in the other in the other way, it's such a deep nostalgic tip where it's not that sad. It's actually insane that like this is what we used to have to do to get movies. Yeah. When I literally just plop on my couch, take a credit card out if I have to. It's already saved. Right. And if I have to buy something, often I don't because it's on Netflix. I already pay a subscription or I pay an Amazon Prime subscription yeah, or whatever. Yeah, you pay a flat rate. But regardless... You know, and there's sticker shock every once in a while. I went to go rent Lion King the other day, and it was twenty dollars, and you couldn't rent it. And you had to buy it. I'm like, I'm not fucking buying. Sounds it. Sounds like Disney. Copy. Oh, that whole thing with just buying. Yeah, now? like there was no rental option. That's the new. Even thing, for ten dollars, I would have rented it. But I'm like, no, I'm not. No, I'm not buying this. I'm here. not buying a digital copy no, of anything. That's crazy. Uh, any movie, anyway. So yeah, so there was. It was a very specific thing, and then up front they had often two counters that were separated. You walked between them to get out, and right. you like queued in two different lines, and they were there were Coke machines and and snacks and all of this. And we actually have a, we actually have a comment about that. Uh, Sean Mason writes in and says, Oh boy, so many memories from my local video store going every Friday night with my parents and sister getting various Disney movies and candy of our choice. Nice. Now, Sean, I like this memory, but I must say that this was, this was in stark contrast to our experiences. I don't remember mom and dad ever, ever, ever letting us get, I'm not a candy guy, but like if I wanted to get, you yeah, know, popcorn really or a Coke or anything like that? Never. Never. Never, never was happening. Never. Movie only. And it goes back to your point where dad was like smuggling in snacks to like a new hope and Empire Strikes Fiddle Back. Faddle. Yeah, like he was just <gasps> So that was so your experience, Sean, was a little more luxurious. Yes. Lucky you, Sean. Than our experience. But I also like what you said, Dagan, and I want to hear a little bit more about yeah. the people that worked at video stores. The kind of person okay. that worked at video stores. Okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna set it up for you like this. I think that I think you're right that there was a there was a lack of enthusiasm with Blockbuster. As far as I understand, they they churned employees constantly. It was not a very pleasant place to work. No, I think that's true. And there was there was a lack of warmth and a lack of care there, for sure. But to your point, I also remember going to the smaller video stores where people knew you, you know, specifically Showtime, where it was just like, I think it was like a couple that owned it. I think it was always just them in there. When you read articles, and I've read them over the years, but especially, you know, again, in preparation, I know I've been saying that a lot, but in preparation for this episode, about people saying, like, there was an article I read where it's like, I worked at a video store for 25 years. This is what it was like. Wow. And that people really relied on these smaller mom and pop video stores and the personnel that worked at these video stores to kind of recommend the movies. Even in the internet age, even when these video stores were dying and their numbers were dwindling and people were coming in in fewer and fewer numbers, there was a there was a more of a warmth and there was more of a knowledge base where you can really rely on people to tell you what, you know, they would get to know you over time and kind of in this pre-algorithmic era where Amazon knows everything about us, where I go on Netflix and it somehow shows me everything I want to everything see. Everything they think you're going to like. Right. At this point, you had no more... To, you had nothing to your advantage except for maybe they knew what you rented last and maybe they they had an idea of what you want to rent next. And so there was... so So... I love Talk that. a little bit about that, about the kind of cinephile and nerd that worked at a video store. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a really great point. That's a really great area to, to cover... And you could actually go up to one of these people and just say, I guess, too, even if you didn't get to know them yet or as you're getting to know them and just say, I really love action movies. Like, I really love Rambo. Recommend something to me, you know. So, you know, there, there, there was that. And that was an important way, you know, in this in that age of just going in blindly. Another way of, you know, trying to get something that you'll enjoy. But, yeah, there was a warmth and a familiarity, I think. Blockbuster, I think it probably it, a lot of it probably just speaks to how busy it was, you know, especially on those week weekend nights, those Friday and Saturday nights. I don't know if they even had the capacity to deal with 
people on a personal level. You know, I don't really remember people working in Blockbuster outside of the counter area. Did they even come out of there? I don't think so. Maybe they were putting shit back or whatever. Yeah, maybe they eventually. But had to no, I don't. Back. No one was like, no one was wandering around being like, "Can I trying help you? to help you?" No, right? no, definitely not. That was. I don't think that was. And that might have been intentional. Like maybe they don't want to bother people. Most people right. don't want to be bothered in those situations. I hear that they feel like it's pushy and shit like that. Even yeah. though it's a video store, it's not like Best Buy or something where they're trying to sell you. a television That's true. Or yeah, you just rented a movie, right? But. Yeah, I, th- I there was definitely a, a difference between the mom and pop era to when the big box video rental stores came out. There was de- there was a you know a, really a, a tactile, a really a, a palpable change in the customer service. Right. I don't remember ever getting any kind of customer service in Blockbuster except you know having to pay a late charge. Right. Right. You know. And it's funny, man. You say that because I was we have another. <laughs> this is a funny one. This what this letter comes or this question comment concern thought memory comes from Benjamin Kane who says so many great video store memories growing up in a small country town in Australia we had our choice of a few video stores both were a mix of new releases and walls of classics my favorite was a store called Future Flicks which also doubled as a mini arcade as well nice if we accrued late fees for a video we would use another store for a while and hope that they would eventually wipe the fees and they usually did oh we probably have more choice today with iTunes and Netflix but browsing is not the same and not as enjoyable so that speaks to the, the late fee kind of thing you were talking about too. But also, I agree with him that it's, there's something in – I don't believe in this mantra that like it's a commitment that made it special. Like you you were committed to watching this movie all the way through. So maybe you found something that you would have never given a chance or you saw a movie that started weak but ended strong. Like these really positive experiences people had by like being committed because they went to the video store. They picked out this movie and that was the movie they had to watch that Absolutely, night. sure. I agree that there's, there's something less enjoyable about so-called blading through Netflix and Amazon and, and having so much choice that it's almost overwhelming. And there are so many stories of people and I, I've, I've been subjected to it and I'm sure you have too where – I go on Netflix sometimes and I look around for 15 minutes and I'm like, I don't know. Oh and, I just, and I just literally shut it off. Helene and I have gone through that so many times. I think it's get. I think Netflix is getting better. Netflix of a, even a year ago was, and before that, was brutal. Brutal. I mean, there was a period of Netflix. I don't hear too much said about this, but there was a period not too long ago where there was a lot. Netflix was full of shit. It was full of crappy content. They got a lot better stuff now, and they have a lot of their own proprietary content also right. that they either, you know, they either distribute or create. It's getting to the point now where I'm almost nostalgic about getting discs from Netflix. <laughs> you know, that's going to be a knockback episode in a couple more years. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's, it's funny that Netflix, Netflix is one of the rare companies. I can't even really think of many others that totally change. Like it totally changes model. Originally. In maybe 2008, 2009, we're going to split the company in two. I don't know if you remember this. They, yeah, they were planning on this. And they, they announced the name of it. Netflix was going to be like the streaming service, and they were going to do a mail-by service called something else. People were like, why Remember would you? that? Yeah, and it was like, it was this whole, it, it literally was like a three-day period that this was going to happen, and then they're like, ah, oh, forget it. Forget it. We're not going to do this. Yeah, I, I I forget the name of it. People have to look that up. That actually happened, where Netflix like made this brief announcement for a, for a brief flicker in time, where they're like, we're splitting this. into two companies. Yeah. And I was like, why would you do that? Oh, see that? It worked out for them, though. It, yeah, it did. It did. And what's, it's funny, Diggy, you mentioned the original content and kind of the quality of it. Netflix, the, the, what's interesting about Netflix and Amazon, the proprietors of, and Hulu, the proprietors of like this digital content, the replacement of video stores, is that they become, they've become production companies to remain relevant. Like that is their, that is the differentiator between these companies. It's not necessarily the stock of movies, which is often different, but not always. 
for instance, I was watching. We were ta- you and I have been talking a lot about it's always sunny in Philadelphia, which I am obsessed with. And the first, I was watching it originally on Netflix, and I got through like for the first five seasons. And then every time you'd start an episode, it would say in the corner of the episode, like Netflix, this is being removed from Netflix on December second or something. Oh, like that. okay. And then it went to Hulu, and then I just ah. finished it on Hulu. So these are the kinds of bounce arounds. This is kind of the the in the erosion of the video store, are probably ultimately saving money, but they get you in these subscription fees that you forget you're even paying. Yes, and that's at, true. And so I'm paying just ten dollars for Hulu. I'm paying ten dollars for Netflix. I'm mm-hmm. paying. You know, hundred dollars a year for Amazon Prime, whatever it is, one hundred fifty dollars. Although that's useful for other reasons. So there's there's this whole, it's changed the entire dynamic of what it is to rent, has changed because now there's exclusivity. Now there's not only exclusivity in terms of the content you're producing, but the exclusivity in terms of like your licensing of content. Absolutely. It's, you didn't go to Blockbuster. There were some. There were some exceptions. There were some video games, for instance, that were only at Blockbuster. Yeah, there uh, would be exclusive. Like the Flintstones NES game, I think was one of them. Yeah, that's what they say. Which yeah. is like kind of a rare game. Yeah. But it's it, the whole dynamic, like I said, of it has changed. It's 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 become so much more than just renting something. And you don't go to you don't you didn't go to Blockbuster and only get like Paramount videos were only at Blockbuster, and and you went and Twenty First Century Fox only was at Hollywood. Yeah, never like that. that that's never kind happened. of the way it is now. That's it's funny that that didn't happen back then. You could see it as being a technique to reinvent, try to reinvent themselves, but they just never did it. Yeah, being affiliated with certain studios and stuff. It's a good point. How did you, how did you deal with the demise of video stores? Is it, is it something that you were? It, it happened over a period of time, but then it seemed it to did. happen very suddenly. Uh, for people that don't know, Blockbuster went out of business in in 2014, I think, and there were okay. still some Blockbusters floating around. And interestingly, you and I had mentioned Dagan at the top of the episode that I I had brought an, an article to your attention on Forbes. Yeah. And and for people that want to look it up, and I suggest you do, the article at Forbes is called The Last Video Chain. And it's about this video chain that I have never heard of called Family Video that exists to this day in the Midwest and in rural parts of the United States. They have uh, – it's 90% of their – 90% of their um, their businesses are in rural communities where maybe high-speed internet isn't as ubiquitous or it's just like a way for people to get out of – off their farm or their homestead or something whatever. Something to do. Yeah, something to do. And they have 750 stores. It's amazing, this story. In 2018, yep. these guys are opening – Video stores. I, yeah, they're opening They're video opening stores. stores. And we were reading – I sent Dagan the article because it was talking about how not only are they – these guys aren't like – it's not like a mom-and-pop operation that is barely you know scraping by. These guys make something like $400 million a year. <laughs> It's insane. And they're talking about how they have two corporate jets. And, and you were saying when we were talking about how the CEO is living this like kind of high life and stuff yeah. like that. It's remarkable. You guys have to read this because it's I'll like, it's it. like from, it's almost like I, I couldn't believe it on this model of like charging a dollar per video or something. Yeah. Some have dollar seen per rental. Ch- children rentals are free. Children rentals are always free. It's amazing. It's the most amazing thing. Yeah, I was my jaw dropped when I read this story. I could not believe this was still going on. So you guys got to go check that out. It's a Forbes article, the last video chain. In case you guys missed it the first time around, fascinating. Stuff. Really, go read about it. It's all it's a remarkable thing. But but how did you deal with it? Like how did you? How was it from from afar witnessing it? Because I remember feeling a. I was a big Netflix fan. I, I got Netflix for the first time in like two thousand three. Oh, you were a pretty early adapter. And 
it, I remember it being so really early, though. so technologically forward. Yeah, you'd log into Netflix and you'd have this queue and you you could drag things around it and order it in such a certain way. Sure, and I love they would tell that. you the availability of the movie and you yep. can kind of like do all sorts of crazy shit. And that was good. That I was wasn't good. really interested in getting new releases, so I never really had to deal with that. I remember Dad complaining often, being more of a new release whore that he would he would want he he could, just couldn't get anything. on There Netflix. was a lag, yeah. But I was getting like a, a lot of like kind of older stuff and and TV series and stuff that I had no problem getting. But sure. I remember originally being like, this is awesome. I couldn't give a fuck about Blockbuster, you know, and there was a Blockbuster around Northeastern on Mass Ave that I used to go to sometimes. And then they had the thing where Blockbuster had their Blockbuster's advantage when they got into the mail or the DVD by mail situation was that they wanted to make it so you can get in by mail, but you can also go in and get any movie you want off the shelf and you can return your movies to the to the stores and stuff like that. But it was just too little too late. And by the time Blockbuster went away, 2013, 2014, it was kind of sad because it was. It was the end of an era, but it was also the vanquishing of a, of a corporate titan that really, with reckless abandon, destroyed thousands of businesses with no regard. And I'm not saying you have to. Capitalism is about having no regard. Right. I'm not saying that that's that's wrong. For there to be the winners on a, on a market, there's also going to be losers unless no one else is competing. Absolutely. But these guys were known above, like in, in the Walmart territory of just predatory business behavior. Their tactics, And yeah. then 15 years after their highest high, they were gone. It wasn't even like they were in decline. They were gone. It's amazing. It's amazing. What do you remember about that? How, how did that strike you? Did that even affect you at all? Or were you kind of already moving to digital media at this time? I think, I think what had happened was, I remember I always marked this specific thing with a friend of mine. When I moved to Connecticut for my first animation job, I had a friend, Dan, who was really, at that point, I wasn't at all getting DVDs, buying DVDs. I was still VHS. And... He was like an early, very early adopter of DVD. And he was he was a real movie guy. He was a real movie buff. And he was in the process of replacing all his VHS with DVDs. And he was buying them. And he had a lot, even then. Like, he had hundreds already at that point. And he was the one that sort of inspired me to switch over to DVD. And I remember once... I turned to DVD. It was later. It was probably I start probably started to turn to DVD later in '99, and by 2000, I think I had my first DVD player because I had my first DVD player before I had a PlayStation Two. My PlayStation Two was my second DVD player, so I had. A DVD player, I think, in 2000. And DVD players were... But the reason PS2 they was so boring expensive. was that at $300 when PS2 came out was the cheapest DVD player you can buy. Absolutely. Very similar, actually, to the Blu-ray player situation on PS3, although it was twice as expensive. Yeah. But a very similar situation. Yeah. And it was... there was Buying a PS2 was the biggest no-brainer in video game history. Like, why would you not buy a PS2? Right. A lot of people agree because they sold 150 million of them. Unbelievable. You know? It, it's, un, it's understandable why, you know? But... I think at the time, for me, DVD sort of made the rent. I, that's when I stopped renting because I, then I just started buying. I, 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 was, I wanted to own. It was cheaper, a lot cheaper than buying VHS. Not only VHS was super expensive. If you were, tr- if you were a real movie buff and wanted to go out and own VHS, aside from just renting them at the video stores, stores like FYE, by the way, that movie, that store is still in the mall. Did you know that? No, I didn't even know they were still in business. They're still in business. Their videos are like five percent of what's in there. What is it like? It's merch all now? pop culture merchandise. Like they have a whole wall of uh, pop vinyls. They have a whole wall of like 
anime T-shirts. Wow. It's almost like a. It's almost like a Spencer's or. That's what. That's what's happening to GameStop and stuff too. It's like, unbelievable. I'm, I can't believe it still has that much physical space. You could see it's dying. You could see it's not going to last. You know, but you know, if you wanted to buy like that, like let's say the early aughts anime, like Trigun or something, a, a VHS containing a few episodes, you were paying sixty-five, seventy dollars for it. That's insanity. You know what I mean? So when DVD came out, it was a marked difference of like, oh, now I could afford to ha- start my own movie collection. So if you cared about movies, th- that was it. You know, they did, that's when video stores ended. I think the the advent of DVD really did have a big impact on the video stores closing because that's when people were like, I could buy. I don't know. If, I don't know if space had a lot to do with it. Like, oh, this I could get a lot of movies and it takes up less space. I'm not sure that was an, a, a concern, but I think the price was a huge thing. I think it is too, and that's what we said at the top. Like, it's just, it's just the, it's just the 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 difference between yeah. what you're spending and what you're getting for renting and stuff like that, and the ability to watch it again and the higher quality and all that kind of stuff. All. Yeah. And DVDs were so easy to damage, especially early DVDs that weren't very well protected. That you know, I remember renting more than one DVD from Blockbuster. It just didn't work. You know, or that you had a buff and stuff like that. So there was there was that issue too. But it's very similar. It's very parallel to video games. Video games became cheaper when we moved to disc because they were just easier to manufacture. You didn't have to have that. Was not only the plastic and the cartridges. That was much more the memory in them. But the but yeah. when you think about what a VHS is, when you think about the manufacture of the ribbon, the raveling of the ribbon, making sure it's all perfect, and then and then putting it in this. I mean, it's a complicated production process Absolutely. as opposed to printing perfect discs and just shoving them in how easy cases. that is much cheaper much easier so so i agree with you that there's an issue there but we you know that brings up a, a, something for me Dave. we didn't talk about games and and renting video games and we talked a little bit about about it actually in Mega Man in our Mega Man episode which might have gone up already or might not have depending on what order i put these up in okay about oh how you know what i'll just not to interrupt yeah. you the yeah. other thing we should say about dvd that oh, i think was really appealing mm-hmm. that it, ju- it just really occurred to me to talk about this was the menu system and how right. easy it was to queue up you know pause slow down rewind cue up a scene that was in vhs it was a nightmare right and that was, was our first ex- nightmare that was our first exposure to that too because laser discs were like that too but we didn't that's right we didn't have they didn't have menus but that you could scrub quickly between between scenes and stuff like yeah that. and we just didn't know that because i don't think i still have ever watched a laser disc in my life i never i knew two people that had laser disc players my whole life you know, they were very expensive. Right. And they were, and it was, uh, I forget what it was. It was some obscure horror movie was the last laser disc printed in the United States. I think it was in 2001 or 2002. They were the Neo Geo of movie watching. Right. Yeah, they were. <laughs> you know, it, what was amazing about laser disc was the format lasted so long, 1978 to like the early 2000s. It was relevant. Because the quality. It was, it, yeah. It was, it was high. It was high quality. Yeah. And it scaled, I think, to these early, more primitive HD platforms, like not, not 1080p, but maybe, maybe 1080i or 720p. Yeah. I think you're like right that. about that. So games. Yeah. So games. I, 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 I wanted. I, I think we'd be loath not to talk about these really quick because we did mention, as I said in the Mega Man episode, about we rented Mega Man Two so much from Showtime Video that they just <laughs> yeah, gave it to us. Absolutely. <laughs> but do you have any game centric memories of video stores? Because that that is an important component of it. Video store indicates that it's just movies, but they were smart enough to get involved in games pretty early. I'm not saying during the Atari era, but certainly during the NES era, everyone was in on it. And you know, one of the video stores I mentioned early on was Try Our Video. Which was near 112 video actually at the at actually at the top of 112 like right where 112 begins that's around where TriR was they had an impressive NES collection and I was renting NES games there in like 1997 
1998. Wow, they were, really? And they went out of business in like the late 90s, early 2000s, and they still had those NES games. And they, I remember going in there, and they were selling everything for oh. $5 each. Oh, man. They might not have all been complete with instruction manuals, but they had all the boxes. And some yeah. of them did have instruction manuals. And that's the funny thing, Dave. You remember when you would rent games, and sometimes they'd have the instruction manual, yep. and sometimes they didn't. It was just like a crash. Yep. Sometimes it was falling apart. Right. Yeah, they'd be taped right. together or whatever. So what, what do you remember about that particular component of renting? I think, especially if we think about the first iteration of game renting was NES and how it just opened up variety for us as kids because we couldn't afford to buy games. You know, we had to wait for those special occasions, report cards, birthdays, Christmas, whatever, right? That was the only time we were getting games. So, or we had our friends' games or friends of friends' games. So this was a way for us to actually play games have access to playing games for cheap and we didn't have to and we didn't have to the other part of it is we didn't have to buy potential duds we could vet games now so that was always a big thing for us is like this video store like even a smaller mom and pop video store that we had experienced in our purview like showtime video they might have had 40 games now we had we knew eventually we could play all 40 of these games and it would only cost five bucks for a weekend or whatever it was so that was a big that was a really big deal as a kid because now you could you could play games you could play a different game every weekend for 5 bucks rather than having to you know somehow try to scramble up $60 every month to buy a new game and maybe it would suck you know now it's uh, all right i wasted a weekend sometimes you'd even go i i think we did this several times you and i pj and i whatever we would go get a game it sucked we'd go back get another game you know what I mean? We might have to pay for it again, but we're going to waste a whole weekend on this shitty game. You know, so... Do you remember if sometimes they would just let it go, being like, we don't want it? Yes, I do remember. I remember Showtime doing that, and I remember TriR doing that. You know, they'd be like, all right, all right, you know, it's, you know, this game stinks, you know, this game's... You know, Peter was much more vocal. I was much more mousy. So he'd be like, you know, you know, this game's no, this game sucks. Like, you know, they'd be like, all right, kid, whatever, just take this, <laughs> this game. You know, whatever. And rent, you know, later, especially rent even into the Super Nintendo days, same thing. That's how I first played Final Fantasy IV slash two. Right. And, you know, renting Sega Genesis games at PJ's house and some of the love affairs I formed with games like like Troubleshooter slash Battle Mania for the Genesis. Like I was so nostalgic about that game because I'm renting. I had to go out and buy it for 80 bucks. Because I just needed to have that, you know, nostalgic resonance, you know. So it it opened up a whole new thing of games we might not have ever been able to play. You know, it was super renting was super important. Well into the and I was renting into the play. I don't know about you, I want your experiences with this too, but my I was renting into the well into the PlayStation. PlayStation One days. Right, me too. I don't think I ever rented a PS2 game. Me and, either. Uh, and ever beyond that, but no, me either. There are a few games that stick out to me. Mega Man Two is the big one, but yeah, there definitely. are there are a lot of other games that that stick out to me. And one of them involves you, and you probably don't remember this, but we rented Dead or Alive, the original Dead or Alive on PS1 in Philly when I came and visited you one of the many times I came and saw you. I remember this. Dead or Alive is a 3D fighter for people that don't know, and it was famous because it had this jiggle mode. Yes, I remember this. And Dave and I would sit, like, sat on his futon in his bedroom or in his living room or wherever it was, and jiggle mode, like, the girls are very, like, it's, it's a very, like, sexually exploitative series, like, to this day. <laughs> 
you know, they did the volleyball games and all that kind of stuff. It's, it's all about these girls, you know, big boobs and stuff like that. Yeah. And But it was very polygonal and very ugly, but we didn't know at the time it was hot for us at the time. And, you know, I was in like it's eighth hilarious. or something like that. And there was a mode where it was like you could turn the jiggle up on these girls' boobs. And I remember just we rented yeah. this game. We didn't know at the time. We didn't know what we were renting. That series is still ongoing? Yeah, I think They're they released still one probably game? a couple years ago. Wow. Yeah, Tecmo. That's, that's fun. Is it Tecmo? Yeah, Tecmo. Oh, okay. Nice. Wow, and uh, Or fun. Tecmo Koei now. Yeah, and right, right. Uh, so I that that's one game I, I relate to it. And then another game, and I, I think I told this story on another show. I don't know if it was on Knockback, but Azure Dreams, which was a a PlayStation one kind of monster collecting dungeon crawling uh, procedurally generated game came out in like 1998 okay. on PS1 Konami game. And it was one of the games Psycho Mantis could read off your memory card. Oh, nice. And and Metal Gear Solid. And I rented them at the time you could rent. This was the summer of 98. And at Blockbuster at the time, this was before Blockbuster was an existential threat. But they had a deal where you could rent a game for five dollars for five days. OK. As long as it wasn't like a new release. And I rented that game over and over again. Oh, like, that's so fun. And the difference is here's the other thing. And I don't know if you remember this. Final Fantasy 2 is a great example of this. Hmm. I remember renting role playing games. Not necessarily that. Like I, I, renting like Lufia or seventh saga or whatever like random games that i never owned but that i would play and i would return them you know i'd rent them on friday with mom return them sunday night or what monday after school and then hope against hope that no one erases my save yes and get the game again later and there was there was a double-edged sword of that sometimes your save would still be there right sometimes it wouldn't whenever i and i hate admitting this and i didn't do it to be mean i just did it because i like to be exacting i would run i'd rent games and there would be save files on them i'd delete them all oh you would yeah like because I, for some reason, I felt like the battery was full or something. I just wanted like a clean slate. And I remember every once in a while, when you, I, because I, I rented Final Fantasy two before I owned it as well. And they were, it was cool because you can get a glimpse deep into the game if you're playing a new game. Like there might be a save file with fifty hours oh, on it, and you sneaky. could just load it up and kind of look around. Get a and kinda, yeah, exactly. Wow, it was an interesting little thing. I never that, even thought of doing that. That you don't that, and that's not even a video store thing. That's something that died with the cartridges because by that point you had memory cards. Memory and, cards. That was it. And it was there's no reason to even do that anymore. Wow. And there was no way to do that anymore. So I remember so distinctly erasing people's saves to make room for my own. That's so funny, man. And I remember like kind of looking ahead at these other save files, whatever the game might be. The 16-bit era. Yeah, the 16-bit era specifically, died. right. Do you remember ever? I, I hear guys talking about this, North American guys, Canadian and Amer- and Canadian people in Canada and the United States. Do you remember ever having access to any of the any Famicom or Super Famicom stuff? No, no, I, I don't remember. They that. talk about that, like renting not only renting the games out, but renting the consoles out. Really? Like what? Where were you living? Yeah, like, I don't, where were you, you guys got to let us know about that. I never heard that in my that life. That was a pretty savvy video video store. Yeah, that's, owners, that's right? nuts. Yeah, I, I remember more than I, once. I remember that there were there were things you can plug Famicom games into, but we were not that you can then shove in your NES. But I right that, adapters. Right, but I don't even remember. I, I remember as I said on a different episode that we had my friend had a copy of Arkanoid from Japan. We had no idea what it was. <laughs> yeah, we're just like, what is this? You know, like flea market bootleg. Yeah, thing. like like it was clearly a real game. That's when I fell in love with Arkanoid. I love that game, but. I was like, what the hell is this? That's I don't weird. even know what the fuck this is. It was a red cartridge. Yeah. Which was, you know, other than the gold Zelda cartridges, everything was the same color. Or the bootleg shit. Like, Pen Gen was, cartridges. like, bl- black cartridges. and Yeah. And, like, the Color Dream stuff, I think, was blue. Baby blue. But, and Color Dreams was, you know, Bible Adventures and all the shit that was yeah. not even Yeah, Wisdom allowed. Tree. What, later, Wisdom Tree. Wisdom Tree, right, exactly. So, 
that, that that's an important through line when we talk about the video store is 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 it, is it how it played into the role of the gamer and you're Huge. right because video games were so video games were actually cheaper than VHSs yeah. but they were such a, a more of a time commitment that the money spent was only part of the equation it was actually also the time spent that's true it wasn't it was it going to be it wasn't going to be a 2 hour game but most likely so right exactly great, now, Dagan, great point we we'd be we'd be loath to not talk about this as well Jacob Waller wrote in and said you have to mention the back room of video stores. To a little kid, I always wonder what was in there. I have some stories about this. So talk to me. So mom was talking to me about this the other night. <laughs> that there was this once we all went to the video store. I guess it was one of the rare occasions dad went into the video store. With us. I, I got to tell you, you know, our dad was a firefighter. So he worked tours and he was away for nights at a time. And he was really, he, he was gone a lot. So I don't remember him ever going into a video store with us, but... Apparently, we all went in as a family once, and he went straight through and went right into the adult section, not even realizing where he was going because he was never in a video store before. Like, he had no context of a video store. And it wasn't, if you remember, if you guys remember what the adult section was usually hidden in some sort of out of the way corner, and it was either divided by a curtain. But mom reminded me of this too, or like saloon doors, like the yeah, half doors. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I remember that. And as apparently, well. he went right, th- right in, right through the saloon doors for whatever reason, and like, and then she just said, like, before they could even finish swinging clothes, like he was coming back out <laughs> again. Like he was just like, like look, looking, like, oh, <laughs> you know, like, I, you know. And she says to this day, he doesn't know. She doesn't know if he was kidding or if he really was like, just didn't know where he was going. Right, right. It, that 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 does sound like a dad joke. But did you ever? I I gotta say, I was a good kid. I never snuck into one. I. It never I did. don't think I ever snuck into one. Try to steal a glimpse, I, maybe. I did. Showtime have one? Showtime. I don't think they did. No, I don't think so. I'm trying to think of a video store. I don't know what video store D&G it was. D and G did, and but that was before you were really around. That was even before you were born. And right. who did? There was a video store that PJ and I used to go to in Nassau County in East Will in Williston Park. That had an adult section. We used to clown around in there all the time. They used to get so mad at us. Where where was the other big one? The, you know what I wanted to ask you? Did Blockbuster have an adult? No, they didn't, no, right? No, they they refu- that was a big thing was that they refused to carry. They wouldn't do it. Films, like yeah, they wouldn't do it. And and it's it's worth noting by the way that that adult fi- the VHS beta VHS and I guess laser just to an extent yeah. was a huge boon to the porn industry. The the Beta was? Yeah, like all three of these formats. Oh, all Just the, formats. the idea of being able to watch something at home was massive. Yeah. People literally used to have to go to movie theaters to watch this shit. And I think that's, that's lost on a lot of people. People would literally touch themselves in these movie theaters. Like, that's insane. Like watching this it's shit. It's so weird. Right? It, it's totally weird. Like I, I don't... In a public place. I don't understand. The peep show shit is weird enough where you like just sit in a booth and do it. Strange. That, I mean, or like rent you know, a booth. It's and fucking then, weird. It is. It's super weird. Like, I'm not even... I'm not a judgy... Yeah, I'm not judging. Judge your... No, I mean, I'm, but I'm saying that is I that, that is something I am judging. That like, you're judging that. Yeah, because it's like, I, I don't judge your kinks. Be into whatever you want. People are in the weird shit. I don't care. Like it seems get, get dangerous however to me you too. It's dangerous with STDs and right. It's just know. it's a very weird thing. So people have to use people used to go. It was like people have to remember that like adult there were adult movie theaters. Yeah, it was in, in the sixties and seventies. Sure. And by the time people you know and so that's you know where porn magazines and Hustler and Playboy and all that shit come in and like the you know all the shit for the fetishes and all that kind of stuff. And it was the it was the launch of VHS. When you when you look into it, that was was huge because finally people can go get off at home. Yeah, that's and, right. And 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 the tapes were expensive, just like the other ones. But people, you know, 
watched them and enjoyed them and it was a it was a, it was a kind of a revolutionary thing for that industry the weirder thing to me though is not having been of age during that era is like how do you re- how do you rent that shit like how do you like walk up to the counter and be like i want this film about yeah. butt fetishes and here it is you know he, like here's the money and you're gonna put it on my file and i have this thing it's like kind of a weird situation you had to be a little bold a little brazen but i wonder if i would have done it you yeah, know? well, it's like buying, I don't know, is it that much different than, like, just buying condoms? You yeah, know? Or, not, I mean, it's a little different, but... Just yeah. because, like, if you're, if, you're thinking, if, you're, if you're just renting, like, the straight-up hardcore sex tapes, yeah. that's a little... But I'm saying, like, everyone has their own kinks and their, the things they're into. Sure, sure. And if you really want to feed into that, then you're going to have to let the person behind the counter know what your kink is. And that's, like, a really personal thing, you know what I mean? Yeah, that's So a it's, good too, point. it's interesting, right? Like, that is interesting. You had to kind of expose yourself a little Yeah, bit. I never, I gotta say, Part I never really... <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that led to DVD. Right now, is DVD? Of course, is, is DVD still around, or is that not even now with online? I don't. I don't know. I remember going into an adult store for the first time and buying a DVD. There's still adult stores. Oh, I'm sure there are. I, an- I remember it being like an amazing thing where I was like, I, I can buy all these porn DVDs. So I'm maybe getting a little personal. I, I think, yeah, that's. I, think, I mean, I that's family. probably a lot of people's you yeah. know experience with that stuff. And it was like such an amazing exposure to. We were talking about the wood, the magazines in the woods and our parents. I was going to say, did you ever find any videos in the woods? No, I didn't find any video. There was just a TV and a VCR inexplicably hooked up in the middle of the woods on Beaver Dam. (laughs) Really long extension cord. Yeah, like a huge extension cord, like two miles (laughs) going to like a generator. It wasn't even going to like a house. It was like a gas. Someone had to go and put gas in the generator. That's amazing. But we never saw who it was. I just don't understand in like the Victorian era, even in... They had like some raunchy ass shit going on. A lot of that stuff was illegal actually in the United States in like the 1800s and early 1900s. That's interesting. I don't know like too like much. like novels and and like re- like really raunchy shit. Like a lot of that stuff went to the Supreme Court because it was lewd. It was just super fucking lewd. But people, it was it's probably super mild by what you see on by today. today's standards. Just go to Pornhub or, or X videos and and go just look, <laughs> okay, and have some fun. I mean, have fun. It's great, but but the, it, I don't understand how people grew up. Like when a, when a couple would get married, for instance, in a, in a more Christian ceremony, for instance, where they were really virgins, they had no idea what the fuck they were doing. The man had no idea what a vagina probably even looked That's like or amazing. was, you know, and vice versa. So Yeah, no experience with it whatsoever. And so it's, I actually almost think the education through porn is actually kind of essential. You Really? Yeah. That's your argument. Hmm. Yeah. Because it's not only the anatomy, it's how it works. That's how it, like, That's what you do? Yeah, like that's insane. What the hell is that? You know, like, like not even really understanding it. Right, right, right. And so I think a lot of people's exposure were through those tapes and the V, you know, and those VHSs. Absolutely. That was a revolution for people because now you can see it moving. It wasn't yeah. just a picture in a Playboy you found in the woods. So that's your question. That's the answer to your question. Jamie Very Wallace. nice, Phil. We already talked about this. Phil Crone says regarding the video store, everyone has that one game they rented an obscene amount of times. Earthbound for me, the game I don't understand why everyone likes. What is your? <laughs> what is all yours? Uh, we talked a little bit about this already, Phil. But yeah, Mega Man Two for me. Mega Man 2. Oddly, you know what game I rented? NES game I rented a lot? Stinger. Really? Rented that game over and over again. That was a Showtime one as well? That was a Showtime one. I don't remember too many other ones. I, I definitely rented in a lot in the Super Nintendo era as well. There was one role-playing game that I rented a lot, and I cannot... A Capcom role-playing game. Breath of Fire? Yeah, Breath of Fire. I rented it a lot. I rented that... There was a period of me... I rented that like over a whole summer, I think. I never owned it never beat it either yeah those games are okay the only one i ever beat was breath of fire 3 that was a ps1 game though it came out in 1998 okay 
Craig Gunter says, I have so many fond memories of the video store. My aunt and uncle owned a video store, and I used to go hang out and help there when I was 10 or 12 years old. Oh, that's old. cool. It became a game to guess what section of the store customers would go to when they walked in the door just based on appearance. <laughs> we could always guess who was going to the adult section at the back of the store. And then he says, uh, <laughs> parenthetically, be kind, rewind. Well, so, I was going to talk about the be kind, rewind. Yeah, so go for it. So did the, did Blockbuster... Now, did the mom and pop videos charge for not rewinding? Um, I think I think maybe. That was like the that was like an early thing, right? Yeah. The Blockbuster... Yes, I think they. I think they did. They did, or they could. Okay. Because remember, remember they had all of these. They they had, <laughs> man, it's it's incredible thinking about this shit. Like, th- th- this this technology that's just gone. Yeah. There were actual machines you could buy that rewound your tapes. Now you could just rewind your tape in a VCR, but these were things that like they were the size of like a book. I remember. And you, these. we had one for a little while at Dad's. Oh, did we? Yeah, and like you could just put it in and just press it down and rewind. Dad, I don't know where Dad got. It. He probably got it at the dollar store or some shit. But I remember a Blockbuster. <laughs> they, a uh, yeah, exactly. I remember Blockbuster. They had like a whole line of them, you that's know, behind the counter, and they would just and they were around tapes like that. But it's like a technology that's just like the VHS is just dead. Someone made a fortune on those things. Oh, that's the absolutely. crazy thing. Some some person, some millionaire, some some family made their fortune in VHS rewinding tapes or isn't rewinding. That, isn't that crazy? Um, as far as I, I, he was talking about working in a video store, yeah. I do want to reiterate the story about people's video. In, yeah, um, I want to hear about that in, again. In, in Maine, when I had the kind of like this crush on the, the girl that worked there. And so I just used to start hanging out there in like sixth and seven, like sixth grade. And then she eventually just let me start like working there. I w- and I would just get paid in like food and drinks and shit like that. And I would like put videos back and just scan them in. Sometimes I'd amazing. ring people up. It was, like really, it was really weird. Sometimes, like, the manager or the owner would come in and it wasn't even a big deal. Like, I was just behind the counter. It was very strange. <laughs> like, no one seemed to give a shit. I have no idea who what that girl's name was anymore. Wh- what was going on in right. there. Like, right. I don't I don't know what the hell I was doing. No, not a clue. I have no. I don't know what the hell I was doing. Like, there's got to be a reason. Like, it wasn't just because, like, I was in sixth grade. I wasn't, like, trying to get with the girl. I wasn't, you know. Well, you were just a customer. They knew you, right? Yeah, it was weird. Friends. Very weird. Very very weird, yeah. But that was that was so that was so funny. And for some reason, the the movie Powder reminds me of that of that place because oh really? Because I don't know if that movie's any good or not. I don't think it is. But I remember just them getting a bunch of them in, and it was just such a weird like his his face is all white and okay. stuff on the cover, and they had the posters. I just relate that that movie to that that video store. I was going to ask you about that. What what images have the most resonance with you as far as what you remember, like, you know, box art or the cover of the tight, you know, the cover of a film that kind of drew you in or disturbed you. And what, what are your, give me five of them that you remember hmm. or as many as you can. Well, powder would definitely be one of them. Yeah. Um, multiplicity is another one with Kevin. I think it's Kevin Costner. What's on the cover of that? One? I don't know if it's like, it, or is it Kevin Costner? It's like him multiple times. Like oh, okay. Okay. That's a good one. I remember that one. I also remember that being in the movie theater because it was like cutouts. I don't think it was Kevin Costner or someone like that, um, in a row like that. So I I, I do I do I like re- that one. I do recall that. It's a good one. Uh, what cool. else? What are some of yours? I have a bunch actually. Yeah, read them off to me. I'll there was some. one. There was one that horrified me, but I could not stop looking at it every time I went to the video store. It was called. It was a horror film called The Stuff, and it was about evil ice cream. For basically, basically, it's like this ice cream that you eat that would just like make you melt. And this evil company made this, like, amazing tasting, like, I guess it was a cross between, like, ice cream and whipped cream consistency, and, like, everybody's freaking out over it was so good, but it would end up making you melt. And there was, like, an illustrated cover of, like, 
like a like a nighttime setting the fridge was open with the light from the fridge and the guy the the container of ice cream was on the floor and the guy was like melt you know just like a pile of goo and he was like i was so disturbed by it and there was another one there was another horror movie called q i think it, i think it was short for quetzalcoatl which is like that lizard right right from final fantasy and it was like this giant dragon and i remember it Vividly because Michael Moriarty, the movie star Michael Moriarty, was in it. Right, who was in Law and Order, I think, right? Yes, yeah, yeah he was a big Law, Law and Order guy. That one, I remember Airplane. It was like the air, the illustration of the airplane twisted in a knot. Right, right, right. The movie Top Secret. It was like the cow with the stamp on the side of it. It was like, a, I think it was a cow with like a red stamp, a giant red stamp that said Top Secret on the side of it. That was a big one. And Ghostbusters. Was another big one. Ghostbusters. That's a good Just one. Just yeah. that iconic black with the symbol. I think mine are a little newer. I remember um, Leslie Nielsen's uh, Dead Vampires Dead and Loving It or something like that. I don't know that one. A big one is So I Married an Axe Murderer. Oh, that's a good one. That's a great cover where she's holding like the the axe. But it's Mike Myers and I don't know the woman's name, but she's yeah, holding, that's a cool holding, storytelling yeah. cover. Yeah, holding like the axe one. behind her, which is pretty cool. Yeah, there's 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 a lot of them. You know, like it's funny. A lot of them. Fla- a lot of, a lot of just. I wonder if it's the movie poster or anything that's just that's kind of flashing into my mind as well. Little Giants is another one with Rick Moranis where it's like all these kids in like football gear that's like too big for them. Yeah, you brought the, this one up. I don't know. Oh, it's a kid football. Yeah, like yeah. A, the the pop one or football thing. Yeah, exactly. Like you know, the, 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 that was the era, like from eighty eight, eighty nine to ninety five, ninety six, with you know all the sports movies. Blank Check was another one, which was about the kid that gets into an accident with some rich guy and he just gives him a check. Like to to like cover the cost of the bike that he ruined or whatever, but he writes for like a million dollars or something oh. like that. So I was like, you that know, sounds I, like a good one. Yeah, just like these kind of innocent kid movies, you know. Bad News Bears, the original sports movies. Bad Did News you Bears. See the original Bad News yeah. Bears. Okay. Slapshot's still the best sports movie. Slap. Oh, not Mighty Ducks. No, Slapshot's better. It's so funny and it is really inappropriate. That's the one with the twins. Those like evil twins. Yeah, the handsome so, twins. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're not. They're not evil. They're just goons. They're goons. Yeah. The Chiefs. I always wanted a Chiefs jersey. It just says Chiefs in yellow letters. Oh, that's cool. From the film. Yeah. Yeah, you see one every once in a while, someone wearing it. Brian Fink says, So many memories of my folks taking me to the video store every weekend to get a game, getting whatever looked cool from the box art, and just dying to get home and see what it was like. That's how I first played the first Metal Gear. Nice. I fell in love with that series. Metal Gear's, um, Metal Gear, the original NES Metal Gear is a great game. Uh, I remember playing and renting, or renting and playing a copy of Mega Man on my black and white TV as well as Contra, and going nuts when I finally got to see them on color for the first time wow can't wait for all these topics i can't believe you were playing those games in black and white That's i hear that a lot i hear that a lot, really a lot it's crazy a lot of i think because you know there a lot of kids were relegated to the second tv in the house in that era the second tv might have been a black and white still, right 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 you now the original metal gear man you know what we were talking about ads in another in another uh, issue or in another episode of the show my my favorite gaming ad of all time is probably the original metal gear ad and i don't know i don't know if you remember it it's it's uh i'll, I'll look it up and, and show it to you but it's it's just all of the weapons in the game. Oh, I think you yeah I I saw this when I was home with you with Dad. Remember? I think it was oh, right. in some comic book. Right, 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 right. Yeah, it's it's just says gear up, and like it's the, I want to get that in a frame. Oh, like, that's it. Let me see that. Yeah, uh, here you. Take oh, my, that's super cool. Take my phone. Oh, I love it. Yeah, I'd love to get that in a frame. Yeah, that would be another great one. Like that's have. a great ad. Is the cigarette in there? I don't know. Yeah, the pack of cigarettes, or whatever. I don't know if it's in there. Maybe it is. Plastic explosives. No, I don't see it. Even then, that was unacceptable. Even, even then, they do. Let's not. The RPG and the Uzi are fine, but let's keep the cigarette out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the rocket launcher. Ian says, my local blockbuster once accused me of breaking the PS1 disc for WWF Attitude, which I know for a fact I did not do. 
Did you guys ever have any return related issues? Were, were you ever blamed for anyone else's <laughs> mistakes? I don't know that I was ever blamed for anything like this. Where you? I have a funny, I, I have a funny story, but it's gonna really just paint me as a crazy person. But I was out of my mind in my teens. I, I went through a weird hormonal thing where I was just doing crazy, weird. Th- Not that I wasn't bad or doing anything illegal. I was just doing some crazy shit. So one night I rented Bram Stoker's Dracula from one twelve. I believe it was one twelve video. I shouldn't even cop this because it's so fucking weird. But I was really, really irresponsible as a kid. As a kid, I was probably, I think me and my, I don't even know what girlfriend it was, to be honest with you. But we rented Bram Stoker's Dracula. I think she drove. I didn't drive at the time. I was maybe 18 because I got my license when I was 19. And I never took this movie back. Days passed. Weeks passed. Months passed. They called, left messages on the answering machine. Dad's all over me like where the hell is this video i'm like i'm gonna take it back i'm gonna well i'm not paying the late fee all right well i'm gonna pay the late fee whatever right for whatever stupid reason i just never took this thing back dude i'm serious like months and months passed now i'm thinking in some kind of weird albeit you have to understand not at all drug induced at all like not, not induced by anything except my own weirdness that Oh my God, like, what am I going to do? Like, I'm racking up hundreds and hundreds of dollars in late fees, like, not realizing there's going to be a cap. Like, they're not going to charge you hundreds of dollars in late fees. It's just going to charge you the cost of the video. In a panic, I think I finally talked to somebody over there. I'm like, I don't have the video. Like, I don't know what you guys are talking about. And they're like, You rented the video, sir. Like, you clearly have the video, you know, at one point, like, you owe us the late fees or whatever. So, after I got off the phone with them, I went in the backyard and buried it, <laughs> buried it in the backyard. Is it still there? Dude, ask me why I, could he, why I couldn't take this tape back. I think what had happened was that I think the more the time passed, I just got more mortified of showing up with this thing. I don't know why I just didn't think, like, just put it in a Dropbox one night or something. Right, right. Yeah, That's fucking it, awesome. Buried the, buried Did you ever unbury it? No. So it's still back there. Do you, do you remember where you buried there. it? Yeah, I do. I do. Do you remember? You know what we got to do. <laughs> <laughs> do you remember... Walking into the, I don't know how well you remember that house. Like dad had made like a, I remember every inch of that like house. A, like a wood plank deck like walkway. Right. That went back along the side of the house and then swerved along the back of the house mm-hmm. to the pool. Mm-hmm. And on the left side of that, once you made the turn of the L to go towards the pool to the left, it was just dirt there. It right. It wasn't even grass. Right. I buried it there. I remember that. Dude, that's still there. Why would I do that? That's so awesome. I was out of my freaking mind. Dude, we gotta go. School. We gotta just go to the backyard and uh, one day, like one night with flashlights, like a bunch of fucking maniacs, and go b- dig it up. That'd be the funniest <laughs> thing in the world to do. I think I finally told Dad that, and he was just like, he didn't even say anything. You buried it. He was just like, how deep did you bury it? I remember like feet? working at it. Yeah. I didn't want them to know where I, you know. That's I didn't want amazing. to un- get on Earth. Some the al- when the aliens come and kill us and they start doing archaeological digs to figure out how we lived, they're gonna someone's gonna someone's gonna find this Bram Stoker's Dracula of the HS. Can't believe I'm copping to that in, in, in public. I don't think anybody ever knew that except for Dad. That's awesome. I love that. It's Good amazing. Isaac Sinova says in New Mexico we had a store called Hastings, which was a little bit like a magical wonderland of entertainment. It had books, videos, music, and video games, and the videos and video games you could rent or buy. I really miss the feeling of seeing covers and just renting whatever looked cool yeah. before buying the ones that really resonated with me. It was well great said. for discovery and helped me find games like the Saga series. I'm surprised you... Saga series is terrible. <laughs> Ogre Battle 64, <laughs> Dynasty Warriors, and others that would go on to become my favorites. I hope, 
I hope the younger generation has some of the magical feelings. I'm sorry. That's like saying like you found Beyond the Beyond or something like that. And you're like, and I, I read the Beyond oh the Beyond. Oh my God, that is the worst game ever. I, Saga Frontiers is, is terrible. Oh, Beyond the Beyond. So Isaac says, do you think that feeling, which I've heard others talk about before, is purely a product of the physical shop in time? Or could it be the age of the shopper since everything, new music, movies, video games, and even books, have a special, mysterious, and exciting feeling to them during the formative years of your life? This is a great question. I think that there is always going to be something irreplaceable about going into a store and seeing things like that. As opposed, It's like I said, here's a great example. Mega, when Mega Man 11 was announced coming to Switch, yeah, and it's coming with an Amiibo and like all these extra like, stickers and shit like that, I'm like, I have no intention of playing this on Switch whatsoever, but I, I want the Amiibo and I'm just going to pay the $50 for everything. I don't care. So I went on GameStop and I had pre-ordered it in 25 seconds. <laughs> ba- ba- and, and, and I will not even think about it until it's in the mail in October right right exactly it's over it's like it's done right even pre-ordering back then you'd have to go into the store put money down and then yeah. get a receipt you hope to... you don't re- lose the receipt exactly and it's so funny every once in a while on Reddit and stuff you see things pop up where it's like guys like I found the receipt of a pre-order I lost in like 1996 <gasps> but uh so I think that that is an irreplaceable thing and it's like I said like there's no real risk anymore you you really have to try to buy something terrible yeah and it's possible that people give bad reviews to things you end up liking, and it's possible that things get overrated that you don't think are as good. Are but sure? that's so much more rare these days. You, Metacritic's a pretty good barometer. Things I, I I'm of the mind that almost everything is overrated on Metacritic, but the you know it's a great. We just have all these tools at our disposal. Sure, that still go hand in hand if you want to go into Best Buy or Target and buy the game. But more generally. You can literally be like, oh, I heard, you know, Final Fantasy 15 is good. Type Final Fantasy 15 Metacritic into Google. Be like, oh, it has, you know, in the 80s. Then go to Amazon, buy it. Ten seconds later, that's it. It's yeah, over. you're so well informed now. Forget it's it. It's just different. And Caleb Hager has the last question, comment, concern, memory, or thought. Okay. says, I was so lucky my mom was a movie addict. Her weekly visits to Hollywood Video would always involve me renting a new game. Not sure if your guys' stores did rent video games too, but I probably played a majority of the PS2 library because of her and the rent to get one free deal. Love you, mom. That's, <laughs> that's, a, that's a good memory. And it's funny because that, that PS2 era, by that time I had money. I didn't have a lot of money, but I had more money. I was making, you know, probably... $150 a week or something in high school. Sure. So that's about normal. So I, but the thing is, is dude, I would blow all literally every penny I had at Smith Haven Mall. What'd you buy? Games. Oh, games. Like g- games. I would go to Panda Express. Yes. And, of course. or whatever, you know, the food Get court some... there kind of sucked. I don't know if it's good anymore. And I would go there and buy games. But dude, I bought everything. I had so many games that like I didn't even open, you know, wow. like it was so weird. I remember buying Red Faction. On PS2 for I don't even think I even opened it. Wow, you never even There's played a ton it. of Dreamcast games I bought. I didn't even open. You know that are still floating around. You have all my Dreamcast games. Do I? I think so, or They're maybe some there? of them. I don't know if you have all of them. They might be down there. Yeah, so it, it's 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 funny that PS2 era. It's it's funny how that overlaps, and people probably have the same thing to say even about the NES era, where it's like I was twenty something years old when the NES was out. I didn't need to go fucking rent games. I bought them, you know. And I I think it's. A similar situation for me. By the time the PS2 era came out, I'm like, I don't need to rent. That's a great point. And renting now is different, right? Like, GameFly was a pretty big revolution for people. I never used it. It's gone now? I think it's still around, but I think it's going to be gone soon. Yeah. And so that was a big revolution. But but also the ability to to stream games on live kind of started that and it went away. But PlayStation Now does that. And and Game Pass on Xbox is really interesting where you can just download games for a, a, a fee. So there's still ways to rent in a way. And PlayStation Plus and all that kind of stuff is technically a rental, too. So it never went away. So I guess I wouldn't say that I never rented games, but not in the traditional way that, you know, once the turn of the century happened, I didn't really do that anymore. Right. 
Are there any closing thoughts you have, Dave, before we wrap things up? No, I forgot to do my joke. Oh, what is the joke? But you know what? I couldn't find a joke pertaining to VHS or even VCRs or anything relating to movies of the 80s. So I have a joke that has nothing to do with anything. Ready? Yeah. How many absurdist, surrealist comedians does it take to screw in a light bulb? I don't know. November. Where are you getting these? What terrible website are you getting these on? All kinds of terrible websites. Oh, okay. Isn't it weird that I couldn't find anything pertaining to 80s video, movies? Or, or video store humor? Video stores. Video stores I put. VHS, VCR, every, all that, that stuff. That is weird. DVD. I agree that is weird. That is very weird. Well, that was a fun episode, Dave. Should we do our lightning round? I have a lightning round. It's not a long one. Okay. It's a short one. It's a very digestible one because I know it's actually, let me, what time is it over there? It's 3.30 in the morning. 3.30. This is how much we love you guys. It's literally 3.30. Yep. 3.30 in the morning. Although this is the time we usually stay up anyway, and it's 12.30 for me. It's true. Because I'm not on East Coast time. That's true. All right. You ready? VHS or beta? VHS. Although it would have been interesting if beta won. You know? Yeah, it would have been. We would have I, never known the difference. We would be calling them beta. We would be using the word beta a lot more ubiquitously, right? Weird for Sony to be a, a loser, right? Yeah, because they were the winner in other formats. Every, in everything, almost. Blu-ray. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Drama or rom-com? Drama. 80s or 90s? 80s. 90s were great for movies, though, too. Yeah, that's true. Horror or adult movies? Adult. You're going adult. Yeah. That. Subtitled or dubbed? Subtitled. VHS or DVD? DVD. Movie theater or home movie? Home movie. I hate the movie there. Popcorn or candy? Popcorn. You going popcorn? That's not a surprise, right? I hate candy. That's not a, that's not a surprise. Well, what would you do? You um, I'm going popcorn. Yeah, yeah. Popcorn, I'm going popcorn is so essential. Sure. Maybe you'll throw some milk duds in the popcorn. Oh, that's too much for me. Don't do that. Really? When we go see Soul, you do that. I'm Salty gonna, and I'll, sweet. I'm going to punch you in the face. You do I'm throwing some gummy Soul. bears in the popcorn. Oh, God forbid. Gummy Coke bottles? God forbid. <laughs> oh. Oh. Mom and Pop or Blockbuster? Mom and Pop. I'm sorry. What happened to you? Me too. New release or classic? Classic. I was never in time for the new release. I was never in time. (laughs) Original or sequel? Original. Be kind or rewind? Be kind. Fuck rewinding. Who cares? It's not even a problem anymore. (laughs) It's not even a thing. I know. It's, it's, It's really one of those things. I hope we have some younger audiences that just have no idea what half this shit means. It's a different time. And it's, it, really it all is. happened in 25 years. It didn't happen before that. didn't happen after that. It's amazing. You had to be alive in that 25-year period. You had to witness that window, that specific yep. window. Absolutely. It's like Toys R Us now. Like, you're, you're, your kids are, well, especially Graydon, they're never really going to, re- they probably have been there, but they're never really going to remember it. No. We went on the, the final vestige. Was it sad? Graydon didn't want to go. It was me and Lilia and a friend of hers. You know what? It wasn't because it was so crazy in there and that nothing was on sale yet, so I ended up just paying full price for everything that i bought <laughs> oh yeah i think you put that on, on right i put, put that, that on twitter, twitter right? i put it on twitter yeah you, you just, know yeah it's, it it's, was like a couple of weeks before they were liquidated like an after some some contractor was coming in to liquidate it's weird you didn't try to uh do the psychotic thing that people do sometimes to try to hide shit no no but you know what how many times have you walked into a toy store over your life and found the thing that somebody hid I was really good at that. Really? Yeah. Like somebody hid the last action figure of a specific thing and like I would just move something out of the way and be like, oh, somebody hid that back there and like purposely put it back on the bags. 
<laughs> doing the right thing. Be kind. <laughs> Very be kind. Speaking of be kind, <laughs> you bastard. I didn't want it. But it's like, did you see any stories about the Toys R Us? I didn't really look too deeply, but about the liquidations, did anyone find anything cool, like old? I didn't see anything. I told you about the guy. This was a random YouTube video. This was probably even before Toys R Us announced that they were closing. I think I told you about the guy that found the Return of the Jedi Gamorrean guard. Yeah, yeah. Under like a, a Walmart a Walmart shelf. That's so cool. And it man. was a real thing. He really did find it. I gotta look that up before I go to bed because that's that's so cool. It's that's, amazing. That's yeah, so, it's on YouTube. Look that was up. always a dream, dude. I because I remember going to um God, what was it? Montgomery Ward. Yes. In uh New England when they were closing down. God. And there was a They were great. I remember that there was a card. There was nothing on the card, but there was a card of a WWF figure from the 80s oh wow. this was in like the late 90s though so but i remember seeing it being like this is this is like a vestige of like montgomery ward past and i just always would love I, I always just fantasized about someone finding a case of gi joe's back there that just was lost to history it's out there's one out there somewhere it's out there dude that's the craziest part about it well dig thank you so much for uh joining me i'm joining you i'm in your house <laughs> we're but joining would, each other we're joining each other it's almost 4 a.m we're gonna go to bed and do this all again tomorrow but uh i do appreciate you guys listening to us remember you can support us on patreon patreon.com slash collins last stand if you like what we're doing on knockback or fireside chats or side quests or some amalgamation of the three you can also uh, leave us nice and kind reviews and scores on various podcast services if you like the show it really does help us out Thank you so much for listening. Appreciate your attention, love, kindness, support, and generosity. See you next time. Bye. Collins Last Stand Knockback is fan-supported over at patreon.com slash Stand. The following names are at the producer level or higher on Patreon, and I want to thank you from the very bottom of my heart for your incredible kindness and generosity. Harshiv Bahia, Martin Beck, Fred Bentz, David Blodel, Mark Boggio, Spencer Brand, Isaac Brewer, Lennon Brixey, Matthew Brousseau, Josh Bushing, Austin Bullock, Andrew Burkhart, John Burry, Alex Cabrera, Will Caldwell, Luis Cancado, Matthew Canoy, Shermer Carter, William Cashel, Brian Chan, Travis Chandler, Sean Chandler, Kenneth Char, David Chestnut, Steve Clifford, Dan Clifford, Simon Conception Jr., Brad Cooley, Nick Cummings, Daniel D'Amour, Daniel Delanikos, Mitchell Durkash, Luke Drake, David Ellis, Eric Finkenbeiner, Michael Fiore, Connor Gazian, Alexander Gates, Michael Gates, Daniel Daniel Glassford, Tyler Goodwin, Josh Gravelick, Richard Green, Ryan Greenwood, Miranda Grubba, Andres Guzman, Tyler Harris, Wyatt Henry, Andrew Hess, Josh Yeager, Paul Joyce, Jeremy Key, Nathaniel Khalil, Taylor Christian Laudrin, Donald Laws, Joe Lawson, Don Q. Lee, Patrick Leslie, Dustin Lewis, Keith Adrian Lewis, Chad Lewis, Lewin Ray Loper, Josh M., Ryan T. Mandel, John McManus, Joe McPartland, Mike Menzel, Albert Miranda, Betty Ann Moriarty, Abe Mukhtar, Brian Nietzsche, Connor Nesbitt, Josh Netzel, Adam Nix, Adam O., Brian Ott, Jorge Palomino, Reed K. Park Parker, Todd Paxton, Brendan Peavy, Marius Garzan Peterson, Enrique Perez, Eric A. Peterson, Jason Pettit, Lawrence F. Prokop, Eric R. Pryor, Jordan Ray, Ryan Reeves, Michael Renner, Peter Reynolds, Shane Rayum, Jonathan Rice, Austin Riley, Ryan Robertson, Ramon Rodriguez Jr., Petro Rose, Michael Sanchez, Matthew Savoy, John Schultz, Chris Schaefer, Mike Shaw, Rayanne Scheinabarger, Toby Schutman, German Sadu, Jordan Smith, Riley Smith, Alexander Suarez, Ahmad Tamar, Tam Tran, Kevin Van Ekren, Oakley Waldron, Justin Wagaman, Chris Wong, Michael Wells, Tyler Woodall, Corey Wyatt, Tony Zaniga, Super Shot ST, Casual Misfits Gaming, Mad Mock Media, Beric, Mubarak, Dav9834, Chris, Doc2015, and Random Guy Radio.